Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special celebration on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. It's been five incredible years of empowering conversations, and today we're combining five of our most popular shows to bring you an unforgettable experience. Get ready to dive into the world of medicine, wellness, finance, and beyond. Sit back, relax, and join us as we revisit the wisdom and insights from some of our most remarkable guests. This is... The Physician's Guide to Doctoring five-year anniversary special. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. We talk a lot about side gigs on this show. So if your side gig or even your main gig is a medical technology product that you want to pitch, or you're even in the early stages of product development, you could benefit from consulting with Charm Economics. They use government data, peer-reviewed journals, and trade literature to support and enhance your business model at all stages. Whether an early-stage pitch deck creation, return on investment modeling, or peer-reviewed article production, they can help. See how Charm Economics can transform your business development today, so you can focus on building your product, growing your network, and implementing your vision. Check them out at charmeconomics.com. Kicking off our celebration is an episode that's all about financial well-being in the medical world. Join us as we revisit our enlightening conversation with Dr. Altalisha Taylor. She's a family medicine attending now. She was a resident at the time, professional speaker, doctorpreneur, and money coach. From defining success on your terms to unraveling the mysteries of real estate for residents, Dr. Taylor has been a guiding light on the path to financial literacy for so many Let's dive in. So we first discussed something unrelated to personal finance, and it was how someone who went to a super competitive undergrad like Duke chose the not so competitive specialty of family medicine. And ultimately, it came down to how one defines success and why it's important to make sure that we have internal measures of success rather than external ones. And then we got into the money stuff, like how as a resident, she can discuss real estate when none of us had two nickels to rub together during residency. The worst advice she ever got money mistakes she's made, common advice she gives to colleagues, and why physicians love Robert Kiyosaki so much, who has recently become a doomsday prepper. Dr. Alicia Taylor got her bachelor's degree from Duke, an MPH from George Washington University, MD from the University of Florida, and did her residency at Emory University. She was an exclusive content writer for Doximity, worked at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, spent time in private equity, and even created the Personal Finance Guide for Residents and Fellows at Emory, and is now on the GME website. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. And now a word from this week's sponsor, Laurel Road. 
Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I can make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Dr. Alicia Taylor, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, before we talk about money stuff, which <laughs> was going to be the bulk of our conversation, right? Money moves. Um, I, I want to talk to you about imposter syndrome because I heard you on another podcast talking about it. And the, the reason was you're a family medicine resident and you went to Duke for undergrad, <laughs> right? And, and, you know, when, if I, you know, if there was someone in my class in medical school that went to Duke, I would think, you know, they're going into Durham, they're going to play, they're going to do something super competitive. Um, and so you had to kind of come to grips with the fact that you were going into a specialty that might, that's, that's not viewed as competitive. And so I thought it was interesting the way that you, you spoke about it. And I'd like to hear you share that with my audience. Yeah, no problem. So um, I went to Duke for undergrad, go Blue Devils, go Coach K, go the Royal Blue for all of my Dukies out there who are listening to this. Um, I'm a Dukie through and through. Um, but yes, I went to Duke for undergrad. Um, I did my under, I did my me medical school, sorry, at the uh, University of Florida. So go Gators as well. Um, and you're right. I mean, it's interesting. Um, when I was deciding what I, what I wanted to specialize in, it was a difficult decision for me. I mean, I knew that I wanted to do sports medicine. What I didn't know was what route am I going to go to get there? And I thought I can be an orthopedic surgeon and I can do surgeries or I can go through the primary care route. And I had a master's in public health. I had a degree in public policy. Um, I really loved helping people. I really loved all of the things that I did in medical school from, you know, seeing kids to delivering babies to seeing adults in clinics. I really loved it all. And I felt like family medicine was the best fit for me. But I'll be honest with you, I was scared. And it wasn't because I didn't like family medicine. It wasn't because I didn't respect the specialty. I was scared because I took out six figure student loan debt and I was choosing a specialty that was on the lower end of the pay scale. And yeah, you know, we can all say you shouldn't go into medicine for the money. I don't think any of us did or we wouldn't have made it this far, but let's not kid ourselves. Money is important, especially when you're someone like me who has six figure student loan debt. And I was nervous. I thought, oh my goodness, is this the right specialty for me? And then couple that with the fact that, like you said, I went to Duke for undergrad, right? A lot of people thought that I was smart. They viewed me as someone who had really high test scores or who could do anything that she wanted. I had a lot of connections in a lot of different fields. I networked very easily. Um, I did really well in medical school. And so they thought, why are you going into this lower paid specialty? Why not choose something that's more prestigious? Why not choose something that makes you look good in front of other people? And so I had both of those things tucking at me, the reality that family medicine didn't pay as much. And then the expectation of other people that wanted me or expected me to do more or do something that was more competitive. And it was a real mind shift for me. It was something that I had to come to grips with. And I talk about this story of me literally sitting on my couch. I am a third year medical student. I'm trying to figure out what the heck to go into, trying to make this decision. Do I do family medicine? Do I do orthopedic surgery? 
And then if I decide not to do orthopedic surgery, should I really go into family medicine? Maybe PM&R is safer. Maybe emergency medicine is safer. Maybe internal medicine is safer or better or would make me look like I was smarter to other people. And it was this real decision that I had to come to grips with. And like I said, I was sitting on my couch and I was talking to my dad, him and I are very close. And he said, Leisha, at some point, you've got to define success for yourself. You got to stop making moves. You got to stop doing things that you feel like make you look good to other people. And you've got to define success for yourself because at the end of the day, you're the one that's going to have to live your life. At the end of the day, you're the one that's going to have to go through the residency. And if you choose something that you do not like just for the money or just to look good for other people, you're going to be the one that suffers. And if you're worried about money, Alicia, I can teach you how to invest. If you're worried about money, we can talk about how to get rid of your student loan debt. If you're worried about money, we can put plans in place, put systems in place so that you can learn to build wealth so that that's no longer a concern for you and you can still have the career that you desire in the life that you want. Wait a second. So if you hadn't had this conversation, he was just going to be like, okay, good luck with the six figure. <laughs> he was going to withhold that advice from you. I mean, it sounds like he's got a lot of great advice there. Uh, my dad's a wonderful man, um, but you know, as you mentioned, I went to Duke, and I don't think there's a day that goes by that he doesn't remind me of the cost of that education. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's an interesting conversation between him and I. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an excellent point, right? Like, you're, you, who am I doing this for? Who am I choosing a residency for? Because of how what I think I'm going to enjoy and where I will be able to give the most or how I'm going to be perceived. And I think there is a, a huge weight that we put on how others perceive us when we are choosing our specialties and then continues throughout throughout our career. So who am I doing it for? And the fact that you're able to to reckon with that so early in your career is is great, is great. So, I, you know, I'm hoping our guests can take something away from that. And so that sounds like that was also the birth of career money moves, right? Absolutely. Great Absolutely. segue. Yes, yes. I love it. I love it. Um, yes. Yeah, so that, tell us that, about career money moves. It's a blog website, um, online forum uh, that I created to answer a lot of the finance questions that my med school classmates, my residency classmates had. Um, I had an econ background, I will say that. I was not an econ major, but I majored in public policy at Duke, which for those who aren't familiar, public policy is a blend between political science, psychology, and economics. And what that meant was I had taken econ courses. I had actually strongly considered a career on Wall Street. I was in Duke's Financial Educational Partnership, which had a mission to bring more females and Hispanics and minorities in general on Wall Street. And that meant I had mentors at Goldman Sachs and Barclays Capital and all of the Wall Street banks. I had interviews at private capital um, firms and private equity firms. And so I was very intertwined in that field. And so I had an econ background. That being said, I did not know a lot about personal finance because I think there's a difference between institutional investing and personal finance for yourself and best habits and, and what to do. Because I think when you're talking about Wall Street, you can get caught up in individual stocks and options and puts and things like that um, versus personal finance is, is a lot different, right? It's how are you going to structure your life? Are you going to make a spending plan? Are you going to have an investing plan? Are you going to have an, an asset protection plan? How are you going to build the life that you want? Um, and so that was very different. And so when I decided to go into family medicine, that 
is when the emphasis on personal finance really started to hit the plate. That is when I learned a lot about student loans. That's when I learned about disability insurance. That's when I learned a lot about investing for myself. And as I continue to learn those things, books, podcasts, you know, lectures, conferences, you name it, um, talking to other colleagues, other people that were much older and much more experienced than I was, people who had built wealth and, and all kinds of things. Um, once I learned that information, a lot of my med school classmates at the time were asking me questions. I kept getting asked the same questions. Which student loan plan should I be in? You know, uh, do I need disability insurance? Why do they keep asking me about life insurance? You know, how do I pick the right job? You know, because should I buy a house? Because they want your money. <laughs> they want your money. Because they're nice people and they want to make sure you're taken care of. Yes, and they like yes. feeding you. <laughs> Um, it's like, I kept being asked the same questions and I thought, why don't I write this down? And so that was the birth of career money moves, which is my blog, um, where I answered a lot of these questions. You get a deep dive into my thoughts and I, I talk about all of these issues. And, um, so that's where career money moves started. Um, and it's just branched off from there, from there, you know, I went to residency at Emory, uh, in Atlanta and I created the personal finance guide for Emory residents. That's on the GME website, started speaking to a lot of physician groups, spoke at the white coat investor conference. And so this has been an, a, a way for me to really educate a lot of my doctor friends and, and just other doctors in general, other young professionals on personal finance. It's, I really believe that a key to wellness is financial literacy, because the best thing that money can buy is control over your time. And as a resident, you want more money. As an attending, you want more time. And so figuring out a way to get both of those things is key. Yeah, one of the major causes of divorce is financial woes. So uh, yeah, uh, totally, Absolutely. totally right. So, um, so it sounds like a lot of people were asking you questions. And so you turned it into a blog. It sounds like as a way to, to avoid having those conversations, right? <laughs> Just look, I've got a blog post on it. Google it, look it up. Here it is. I'll print it out for you. I don't want to have to say the same thing again. How many times do I have to tell? That, is well, that just, that, that's what I'm hearing here. No. Okay. So here's the thing. <laughs> I like to talk. If you if you couldn't tell already, I, I like to talk. Um, and so I don't have any problems uh, talking to a lot of my med school classmates answering questions. One of the things I love actually. Um, but you know, to be honest with you, I really wanted to help people that didn't know me personally, because because what, what I was understanding and realizing was that my friends knew what to do because they were able to access me. They knew who I was. Right. But there's lots of people who have probably never even heard of me before. Right. Like, how would long. you? Not for long. <laughs> right. Because we're speaking it into existence. <laughs> uh, but no, seriously. So a lot of people may not have ever heard of me before. Right. But I thought, what if I can write this down? I can publish this article. I can start this blog. Maybe they'll eventually hear of the blog. I'll publish this article on Kevin MD, on the White Coat Investor, on a lot of these other sites. Maybe people can get this information in some sort of way so that they can be empowered to make the best decisions for themselves or at least know what they should do, shouldn't do, or get some general guidance. So as you're dispensing advice to, to your friends, the ones that do have access to you, what are, what's one of the most common pieces of advice or clarity that you're giving? Yeah. So I think, um, if I had to narrow it down, um, I would probably say three things. One is get a plan for your student loans. 
my, my friends have heard me say that a million times. A lot of folks have student loans. And so having a plan for your student loans is key. And one of the things that I do is try to walk people through the different plans. Um, and it can get pretty nuanced, but I, I tell people get a plan for your student loans. And if all else fails, just sign up for public service loan forgiveness and at least get your foot in the door with that program so you can get your loans forgiven. And so um, I would say number one is get a plan for your student loans. Um, number two is protect yourself. I always say that protect yourself and and what do i mean by that protect yourself against emergencies by having an emergency fund protect yourself and your future income by getting disability insurance yes it's that annoying thing that everyone tries to email spam you about but you actually do need so um, protecting yourself um, and the third thing would probably be start investing a lot of doctors i found know very little about investing you you mentioned a roth ira they don't know how that's different from a 403b or a 401a and i get it it's complicated no one's ever taught you those things before and it's and boring. So, <laughs> so boring. But you All know those what? Numbers, but no, but it's not. <laughs> but that's the thing is, I think a lot of that industry is it makes it opaque um, unnecessarily. It's ultimately not that complicated. There aren't that many things. You might not have to memorize them. You just have to know the few things that you need to know. So once you figure it out and you get those systems in place. So just give uh, give an example of one of those things. Right. Yeah. For, so for our audience. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I will tell my co-residents is start investing and they say, what, how, what account to use? And I'm like, if all else fails, you can use your residency 403B or a Roth IRA. But people say, what should I invest in? That's inevitably the next question. And I'm not a financial advisor, so let me say this first. However, what I usually say is index funds. And they say, what the heck is that? And I say, instead of picking which stock to choose, just pick them all. And that's what an index fund is. You just pick them all. <laughs> um, and that usually simplifies things a little bit. And then they ask, well, how do I invest in an index fund? Which one should I choose? And I can tell them what the most popular ones are. But that's usually where I start when it comes to at least investing. Yeah, I and I, I'm not a financial advisor either. This is not financial <laughs> advice. And this is not medical advice. And I'm not your doctor. Um, but uh, it's amazing that we have to say these things, but we do, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. That's what what I invest in is I'm totally in index funds. You don't you can't pick stocks and neither can they. And if you pick it, if you buy at the right time, how do you know how to sell at the right time? How do you know what the right time is? And the right time is when you need the money. And so, yes, um, uh, I, I completely agree with that. And and there are a lot of people that try to convince themselves that they can pick stocks. And ultimately, the, the statistics say uh, say otherwise. Um, so an, another thing that's on your um, website, it's on your blog, is is real estate, real estate, real estate. <laughs> As a resident, like how, what is happening there? How are you talking about real estate as a resident? Yeah, so um, I got interested in real estate like most people I know did who read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'll be honest with you, right? I Great am not- segue, we'll be talking about that soon. <laughs> um, you know, there are some pros and cons to that book. There are some things that people like and dislike about the book. But one of the things that I will say is that it, and most people who read it, it causes a paradigm shift in the way that they think about money, in the way that they think about building wealth. And I will say that one of the takeaways that many people have from that book is the um, fact that one of the ways to build wealth in this country is through real estate. Um, it is not the only way to build wealth. You do not have to invest in real estate to build wealth, but it is one of the major ways to do so. 
And when you talk about how can I build wealth when I don't necessarily have a lot of money to start with, real estate is one of those avenues that allows you to use OPM or other people's money to get started. <laughs> uh, and so at the time when I really started writing about real estate, I was a fourth year medical student, right? So I was broke, broker than broke. Um, and <laughs> I was like, I want to build wealth. I want to be able to create the life that I desire with more control over my time. <laughs> I'm broker than broke. <laughs> and I want to build wealth. Yes. Okay. I, I not only want money, but I want wealth, right? Because wealth allows me to build the life that I desire. And so I was like, how can I do that? And I know that I can do that through index investing, which is one of the things that I do as a resident. But I also know that one of the ways to kind of massively increase your returns is through real estate. Now, when we say real estate, there's a lot of different things, right? Some people can think that I mean single family homes. Some people can think that I mean duplexes and triplexes. Some people think I mean apartments. Some people think I mean land. There's all different forms of real estate investing. But when I started the real estate portion, it was really about, you know, how can you get started in real estate? Um, what are the different avenues to explore and figuring out what may be best for me or not? Um, and then another portion of that real estate um, blog part was buying a home. Because I think when I was um, graduating from med school, I can't tell you how many of my med school classmates, one of the first things that they wanted to do was buy a house, right? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that desire. Most of us have spent years and years, decades, you know, in school. And one of the first signs of adulting for a lot of people is being able to buy a house. And so I get it. I get that desire. And I was someone who was very intentional about not buying a house. And a lot of my classmates were buying houses. And so it was like, well, Leisha, why are you different? Why did you decide against this? You know? Um, and so for me, a lot of those blogs are, should you buy a house when you graduate from med school? And it was why I'm not buying a house. One of my most popular articles, I think that I published on Kevin MD was 12 reasons why I'm not buying a house after I graduate from med school. And it was really kind of breaking down all of the nuances involved in buying a house, the pros and cons of renting versus buying. And that the right decision may be different for different people, but my main purpose was to get people to really make sure that they were factoring in all of the different nuances instead of just comparing rent price to a mortgage and saying, oh, one's better than the other. Yeah, well, you get something with your money because you are paying uh, into equity of the home versus paying in rent, but ultimately that math does not always work out. And on top of the fact that the real estate generally goes up, but I'm a great example of what happens when you buy in residency because I bought in 2007 and sold in 2011. So <laughs> that did not work out well at all. And it was a long time before I actually bought um, real estate again. And now I'm, I'm coming around. I'm trying to, um, we, we had an episode a while ago on short-term rentals. So, you know, I'm trying to convince my audience to, if you're, if you're wading into the real estate market and you're an attending, right? Use someone else's money to buy yourself a vacation home. So do all the market research of like, what's going to be an awesome vacation home and people are going to be like-minded as you and think that that's awesome. And then you rent it to them in a short-term rental format. And you then, anytime you're not there, they're helping to pay your mortgage for your vacation house. So that's another way to get into So there's, and there's cash flow from the short-term rentals and there's equity from the house itself. And there's tons of tax advantages because the tax laws were written by rich landowners, yes. right? That's who made the tax laws. Why? To benefit them. So yes, yeah, real estate. It's, but so, okay, so wait, your foray into real estate was not buying real estate. That's what I'm hearing. Like you started blogging about why you shouldn't, but 
Okay. Okay. Well, you know what? I almost bought a house, which was its own story that I don't know if I've blogged about, but I I was so close to buying a house. Um, But it wasn't for me to live in. I was actually going to buy my first rental property as a medical student. (laughs) Uh, And so that was an interesting uh, thing. I'm a pretty good at networking. And so master at trying to get OPM, other people's money, uh, to buy the property. Um, Ended up not buying it for a slew of reasons. Um, One was I didn't live near the property. I was going to be a resident. It was going to be a little too much to manage, I thought. Uh, Looking back in hindsight, that was probably a great decision. But um, I was so close to buying a real estate property and I had networked my way into getting a lot of deals. I still get emails nowadays for apartment syndications and, and that kind of thing. I went to a lot of real estate meetups, met a lot of awesome folks. And so very still you know, very, very much into real estate. I invest in REITs now, which is like an index fund for real estate properties. Um, and so that's one of the things that I do, but I definitely plan to get even more into real estate. It's just obviously been challenging <laughs> as uh, like being a resident, but uh, once I finish residency, once I finish fellowship, um, definitely something that I'll be looking into. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll have a great, uh, great foundation. So you mentioned Robert Kiyosaki, right? <laughs> and this is an individual that keeps on the name Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Ah, like, (laughs) I can't tell how how many times I've heard that name, how many times I've heard about that book, and how many, like, in for physicians. What is the physician obsession with Robert Kiyosaki? I mean, you got into it a little bit with the the explanation of it. It's like, it's a paradigm shift. So why do you think doctors are so obsessed? Is, Is it because we are, we are people who are in another profession would have been management, but we find ourselves actually being the labor and he helps you like kind of change the way you use your money so that you become more of a manager is that or is that am i off here what's what's your what's your thought here well i think there are a couple of things i think the first thing is storytelling and that sounds very random and like what is she talking about storytelling anytime that you're able to make a point and tell a story it resonates better So if you've heard a keynote talk at a conference, right? Someone just spewing information, you get bored. You start looking at your phone. You're like, why are they up there? I don't really care. Even like in residency, right? Grand rounds, you know, snooze fest, right? But the, the people that you listen to the most, the people that resonate with you the most, the ones you're like, wow, that was good. They're really able to connect it to your life. They're able to tell a story. A storytelling is a key way to make a point. And so this is kind of like a public speaking tip 101. But one of the things about Rich Dad, Poor Dad is he's telling a story. He's telling a story that's engaging. So that's number one. Number two, it's, it's a book about money without telling you a lot of details. And doctors don't know a lot about finance. A, a lot of doctors don't, don't know a lot about finance. And so they're not going to read a lot of doctors, let me say, are not going to read a book that is like very detail oriented on finance stuff, right? It's not a topic that a lot of doctors are particularly interested in, right? But if you're able to tell a story and you're, and you don't get caught up in the weeds, it tends to be a book that people are able to get through. Okay. So you're telling a story. Um, you're, you're, you're not so much in the weeds that you're boring a lot of people. And then number three, not he's all those teaching... numbers you were talking about before, <laughs> Roth and 403B, and 529A. And <laughs> you don't see that. Seven, yeah. Um, but the, the third thing, and this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier, is the paradigm shift. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that there are very few books that I found that make you think about things differently. There are books that can teach you something you did not know. 
But there are very few books who can change your entire thinking. And some people get that paradigm shift, some people don't. But I find that the folks who read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, who like the book, they got that same paradigm shift that I did. And so what is it? It's the fact that your life can be drastically different if you're able to build wealth, right? And that the ways that you have been taught on how you can become financially stable are not necessarily correct, right? We have been taught if you're smart, you get a good job and you get paid really well. If you're smart, you become a doctor like you and I. And then what we've realized, unfortunately, after we've already gone through medical school, after we've gone through residency, is that maybe we were sold a bill of goods. Like, yes, doctors get paid well, but they don't get paid well in residency and you have to work a lot and you're constantly trading your time for money. And eventually you get to this point, usually as an attendant. But that's what a job is. A job is trading your time for money. Exactly. And what he's saying in that book is that- That's preposterous. The wealthy do not trade their time for money. And that is the paradigm shift is that when you try to build, yes, you can build wealth slowly over time through index investing, which a lot of doctors do very, very successfully. So I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that because that's one of the things that I plan to do, right? But he's also like the wealthiest people in the world did not become wealthy by being an employee. They became wealthy by building a business, by investing in real estate and by getting really good at taxes. Let's just keep it 100. You build a business, you invest in real estate and you hire a really, really, really great tax person. Um, and that's the paradigm shift of, of rich dad, poor dad. And I think that's why that book is so popular because as doctors, no one really talks to us about finance period and no one talks to us about finance in that way. Yeah. 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 Did I make you a believer? Uh, <laughs> I might have to actually read it. <laughs> yes. Right. I mean, I don't actually get paid by Robert Kiyosaki. So like if someone knows him, like, come on, <laughs> endorsement, deal, sponsorship, something. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I'll write a blog post for her. That'd be great. Okay. So have you gotten any financial advice that you would be willing to share with us that you thought was so awful? that you cannot believe that someone actually gave it to you. What is the worst financial advice that you've gotten? Wow. Um, man, the worst financial advice that I've gotten. If you are a doctor, you don't have to worry about money. So, <laughs> um, and so that one was pretty bad. Uh, it's, no, it's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> you know, we, um, you spoke at the white coat investor conference and, uh, you know, Jim Dolly's famous for live like a resident. So if you live like a resident forever, then you don't have to worry about money because you'll have you'll have plenty of it. You just have to live like a resident forever. Um, so, yeah. But yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, uh, I guess everybody, it just, um, I, I don't know if there's any profession where you always have to worry about money. It's, it's a finite resource, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, and, and everyone is, is, is every, everyone is different. Their, their experience is different in medical school, but what I was taught in undergrad and in medical school, I mean, I was getting my master's was that you're going to get paid really well as a doctor. So you don't have to worry about money because the money's just going to be there, right? If you just do what you do and just work, you'll be fine. And I found that that is not true, right? Especially when it comes to student loans, like what the heck, like yeah. 
the student loan burden has increased exponentially. Your older docs who are in their 60s and 70s don't didn't have the same student loan burden that I have, right? No, no, so medical me, school is like $5,000 a year or something. something right, they could pay for yeah, it with yeah. a summer job, right? Whereas yeah. I've got six-figure student loan debt that almost made me not choose the specialty I loved because of the debt, right? So for me, not worrying about money, well, that's interesting for you to say, but what about for someone like me who, you know, I didn't grow up poor, but I also didn't grow up rich, right? I still have student loan debt that I need to pay off. And if my 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 job is not, you know, paying my student loan debt, then obviously that's something that I need to plan for. Um, and, and there are a whole host of things, you know, I, I heard some bad advice about, you know, just don't worry about your student loans and training, they'll, they'll, they'll take care of themselves right? A lot of people put their loans into forbearance or refinance with a private company and now shooting themselves in the foot. Forbearance. Um, yep. <laughs> you know, so that's bad advice. You know, you don't need disability insurance. All right. Just talk to a doctor who got disabled or got diagnosed with a mental health illness and, and is no longer able to work and now has no way to you know, have an income for their family. Um, I've, I've heard a bunch of stuff like, you don't need to worry about investing. You can just save. I don't know anybody who's saving their way to wealth, right? You, you can't save your way to wealth. <laughs> you have to. It. Where do you save it? A savings like, account making 0.01% per year. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's like you have Low, to invest. Yeah, slower than inflation. Actually, you're technically losing money <laughs> if you're saving and and the inflation rate is outpacing your, your interest rate. Yes. Oh yeah. my goodness. Don't even get me started. A lot of doctors don't even get cost of living raises each year. So you're basically losing money because your employer is paying you the same and inflation is now 7%. But yeah. you know what? I can go on a time. <laughs> yeah, we renegotiate our contracts with insurance companies every few years. And so if the inflation rate continues at this rate, then we're, you know, we're really getting hosed. Um, so, so you got some terrible advice. Sounds like you didn't take any of it, which is great. <laughs> but have you made any money mistakes that you'd be willing to share with us? Oh my goodness. Yes. 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 Um, one of my biggest money mistakes is taking out a bunch of credit card debt and um it was in shame on me right because i i had already graduated from duke at that time i had already like worked in private equity at that time so i i kind of like knew better i had some econ background but i took out a credit card and i was charging a lot of expenses on my credit card now to be frank it wasn't like i was like going on like international vacations or things like that but i had moved to dc um and i decided i was going to change the world I am someone who at 22 is going to change the world. So I moved to DC <laughs> to, to work in policy uh, because I really thought that I was going to change the world. And I took an underpaid job and um, realized that DC at the time and probably still is now was very, very expensive. And so it just happened to be that the job that I got was not paying enough to cover my bills. And I charged a lot of expenses to my credit card to be able to cover those costs. Right. So some people might say, oh, well, that's not bad debt. The point is that I had a lot of credit card debt. So after doing that for a year, I had a lot of credit card debt. Um, and by the time I went to medical school and I was, you know, paying for med school applications and secondary applications and paying to take my MCAT and paying to move, um, all of those things, you know, the credit card debt was increasing. And as a med student, I couldn't work, or at least I didn't work. And so that credit card just kept accruing. And by the time that I started residency, I had like $10,000 in credit card debt. Like it was a lot. And I'm someone who's debt averse. I'm someone who was really like kicking myself in the foot saying, how am I going to get rid of this credit card debt? And some people might be like, oh, don't worry about it. You can just pay it off as an attending. Well, I didn't want to do that. I felt like the longer I had debt, the longer I was going to be paying interest payments on that debt, the longer it was going to take for me to really start investing and really start building wealth. And so 
I made a plan to pay it off. I decided I was going to live with a roommate. I decided that I was going to set aside money from each paycheck into a separate account that I used to pay off the debt. I decided I was going to drive a really old car. You know, I decided that I wasn't going to take the vacations that some of my car residents were taking, but I really sacrificed to pay it off. And I was able to pay it off within like a year and a half, I think something like that. But so I paid it off pretty quickly, but I would say one of my biggest money mistakes was having a bunch of credit card debt, right? Because imagine if I would have just taken that money that I used to pay off that debt and would have been able to invest it earlier, would have been able to, you know, buy real estate properties. That's, a, that's another reason why I didn't buy real estate was because I was like, I probably should pay off the credit card debt that I have. <laughs> um, yeah, at the interest rates that they sometimes have you at, the, uh, yeah, that seems like a no brainer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was probably one of my biggest mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Um, any final bits or pieces of advice for our audience, whether it's anything, whether it's real estate, financial advice, student loans, starting a blog, anything, any parting oh. advice for, for our audience? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing is define success for yourself. Um, so if you missed the beginning part of that podcast, rewind it, define success for yourself, make sure that you have an end goal in mind and define what you really want. Um, so that's one thing. The next thing is start caring about money, right? You don't have to obsess over it, but I would get a plan, whether that's a student loan plan, an investing plan, um, an asset protection plan, get some sort of plan in place. So once you define what you want, come up with goals and objectives so that you can get there. All right. So make sure that you're having a plan. Um, and then, you know, don't be limited by what other people say is possible. I am a resident and I have a whole side business. I do consulting on the side. I, you know, I'm going to do some podcasting on the regular. I get to do all these really cool things. Why? Because I decided that I could do it. Even as a resident, even as someone in training, I decided that I could make money as a resident on the side. And that's exactly what I did. And if I had to listen to everyone else, they would have told me just focus on your training or maybe you can moonlight. And I decided that I wasn't going to listen to that advice. And so I want to say that you're unstoppable. You are smarter than you think. You are more capable than you believe. And you can do anything you set your mind to. And so decide what it is that you want and go after it. Awesome. Awesome. So we can find you at careermoneymoves.com, but you yes. mentioned that podcast. Where <laughs> else can we find you? Yes, yes, yes. Physician philosopher, physician philosopher. So go to that podcast um, and you will see me there a couple times a month. Fantastic. Altalisha Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Our journey continues with a delightful twist as we step away from medicine and dive into the art of smoking. Smoking meat, that is, with Dr. Jimmy Turner, also known as the physician philosopher. He takes us on a mouthwatering adventure as we discuss the world of smokers and delicious barbecue, one of my favorite hobbies. It's a mental break like no other and a perfect reminder that even doctors can enjoy a flavorful escape. Many of you know Dr. Jimmy Turner. He calls himself the physician philosopher, and this is his second time on the show. In the first episode with us, we talked about his first book, The Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance, and he just published his second book, Determined, How Burned Out Doctors Can Thrive in a Broken Medical System. He also runs the Alpha Coaching Experience and hosts the Physician Philosopher podcast, but we didn't talk about any of that. He recently bought a smoker, 
and I love smoking meat. So I thought we'd chat about smoking. Now, I'm on Long Island, and he's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, so I thought I'd learn something from him, but as it turns out, something that I've been doing for a while, so I, I ended up doing most of the talking. This is the first episode that I've done that has nothing to do with medicine, and I hope it's a nice mental break for everyone. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Jimmy Turner, thanks for coming back to the podcast. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks, Brad. I'm super excited to be here and about a topic that I don't I don't podcast about very often. So this is gonna be fun. Yeah, our last our last episode was about just the mindset about money and the 80-20 rule. And it was a lot of great material. So for all the listeners, you know, definitely check back. That was, I mean, it was definitely well before COVID. I think it was probably 2019 where we when we recorded the episode. So what what kind of stuff before we get into this episode, which is gonna have nothing to do with medicine, uh, and all about cooking meat, mostly smoking meat. Uh, but before we get into that, just tell the listeners what you're up to nowadays. Yeah. So uh, I, I still, my two favorite topics are still money and mindset. And so, uh, you know, I've got a couple of things on the, on the burner right now. I've got medical degree, financial university is opening up next month. And then uh, the alpha coaching experience for, for burned out doctors. And so I'm super excited about both those things. Been working on it for a really long time. And, and actually I have a third thing. I got a book coming out in a few months. Uh, called determined uh how burnout doctors can thrive in a broken medical system so those are kind of the three big things for me but if people you want to check out check out stuff the physician philosopher podcast is still kicking and we now we alternate money and mindset episodes every week because those are my two my two things it's what i love to do it's what i love talking about and um we actually had someone who's involved in your podcast in on the episode a couple of weeks ago dr yeah. alicia taylor yeah we get we can hear her there as well right yeah, Dr. Taylor. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Taylor and I are running, running MDFU together, and uh, she is uh, an amazing human being. Super excited to be working with her, um, and and really love everything that she does. So I'm I'm a big big fan of of, of Alicia. What what is the Alpha Coaching Experience? Could you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So Ace Ace is a uh, 12 week coaching program for doctors who, uh, you know, probably I'd say 99 percent of people are either burned out in medicine or they're working through a career transition or some of some kind they're thinking about taking a new job they're thinking about you know a leadership position they are considering a change uh, in some way shape or form in medicine thinking about going part-time stepping away completely uh, and so doctors come into ace to to basically get help thinking through that process and we teach them a step-by-step -step method to to really kind of fall back in love with medicine to be honest with you and and if they decide to to go a different path then they at least do do that from a position of strength instead of from a position of scarcity uh where they're running away from from a very broken medical system that i think we're all experiencing right now so um so yeah ace is all about empowering physicians uh through teaching them about money mindset and kind of life well i think that's a good lead-in to uh to smoking meat because you can't really have a scarcity mindset when you are smoking meat. So the, yeah. the reason I thought of this episode is I saw you posted something on Facebook about getting uh, getting a smoker. Yep. And that's something that I've been doing ever since I moved to the suburbs. So I used to live in Queens, an apartment building in Manhattan before that. And so you can't really do that out there. Uh, you can't really have that out on your balcony. Uh, so once we got a house in the suburbs, I was like, I'm gonna do it. I'm, get it. I'm gonna get a smoker. Uh, so I saw you did that. So let's first talk about your your smoking experience. 
Yeah. So, so my, my smoking spirits actually comes from, uh, from my father-in-law. He's a big, big, big smoker. Uh, so, and pit actually, boss. yeah, pit boss. I mean, that's his thing. So, uh, you know, I got a pit boss grill just like he does. And he actually, we, you know, we went to the, the backstory on this is actually kind of funny. So we, um, you know, we're trying to figure out where we were going to do Christmas, uh, last year. So, you know, December of 2021 and, uh, you know, we had, uh, my brother and, uh, you know, sister-in-law flying in from California. We had family coming up from South Carolina and basically the, you know, the border of Georgia. And so we were going to have several people in our house, uh, you know, for this gathering and, you know, my, my parent-in-laws, my mother and father-in-law, their house isn't quite big enough to have that many people in it. Um, you know, it's kind of three, three bedroom, two bath kind of house. And it's going to have like, you know, 12 people. I, I mean, my, myself, by myself, I have a family of five. Right. And, uh, and so, I was like, Hey, what do you think about coming up to my house for Christmas? He's like, well, yeah, I mean, that sounds great. We love your house. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, who's gonna, who's gonna smoke the, uh, the roast beast. And I said, I said, well, uh, what do you mean? He's like, well, you don't have a smoker. I can't do it if I come up there. And he's just like, like, this is like his thing. This is what he lives for. <laughs> oh no. Like, <laughs> so that's, like the, that's what, yeah. It doesn't matter yeah. how many people we need to squeeze into our tiny house, but if nope. we can't, that's the, the, it's the one one entree that really <laughs> makes or breaks the holiday. Oh, yeah. it's so funny. So it's like, it was like an existential crisis moment for him. He's like, I'd love to come, but you don't have a smoker. And I said, well, <laughs> Hey, what if I buy a smoker? And, uh, so that you can, you can, you know, do that on the grill, you know, when, uh, when you get here. And so he's like, no, nah, no, you don't have to do all that. And I was like, no, I, I, I want you to want to come. And that's a big deal for you. So I'm happy to spend the money to invest in our relationship by this smoker. And hey, it comes with the added benefit that I get to mess around with it and learn how to smoke some meat, right? So, so I ended up buying this uh, Pit Boss grill and uh, that that he recommended, and you know we got the the pellets and it's a pellet grill, and I, I love it honestly. You know, I, I'd say that what what I've cooked the most since then has been ribs. I've done that several times now because um, it's something that doesn't take quite as long to smoke. Because for me, the thing that I was worried about was like, man, I hear most smoking lots of meat takes a really long time, um, and so. So the ribs, I mean, that's a good, like, you know, five, six hour kind of thing. It's not really like a 10, 12, 14 hour kind of thing. Uh, so I have just to be clear, pork ribs. These are pork ribs. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They are. They yeah. are, they are pork ribs and uh, St. Louis, St. Louis ribs is what I normally do. So, okay. um, but, uh, but yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, but I got, I got basically, I got, you know, this girl from my grand or from my grandfather, my kid's grandfather and, uh, and have loved it. So when you chose pellet, why did you choose pellet? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you the honest answer because he told me to, but okay. the, uh, the, the shorter answer. So I have a gas grill and, yeah. and, you know, I have friends that have green eggs. I have friends that have, you know, other kinds of, of grills. And, and for me, like just eating the, the meat that came off his grill, like it was always just very consistent, um, you know? And so like the, keeping the temperature the same and, and, and having it, you know, fed the way that it is, um, yeah. like being able to kind of set it low and slow was really I think important to me when I was buying this grill. And, um, and as far as I knew, that was kind of one of the best ways to do it. I yeah. Well, also for, for, for the, for the listeners, the uh, pellet grill, it's so the, the original company that did it was Traeger and they were, I think they were like a sawmill company mm. or something. And they had all this leftover sawdust. They're like, how do we monetize sawdust? Oh, we'll compress them into little pellets. And I'm not sure if this is the timeline, but maybe they, they made pellet heaters first. Um, cause that's a thing, um, that you could use these little pellets. It's not the same pellets though. Cause the pellet, you need, you need specific flavor of wood to make sure that you're putting the right flavor into your meat. So it's not the same thing that's going to like keep your house warm. Um, so what they do is they, they, these pellets, 
uh, are fed into an auger that you can then increase or decrease the rate of the faster you burn them, the hotter it burns, the lower you, you the lower the rate you burn them, the uh, the lower the temperature. And so it's a way of internally regulating the temperature. And so what you'd have is you have a thermometer for the for the the pellet uh, for the smoker, um, and then you have a pellet for the sorry a thermometer for the meat. And so at least with mine, it's Wi-Fi enabled. So I can go for a ride. I got a Rectech pellet also. I was going to ask what you had. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I can go for a run or something. And then, uh, although it's, it's, it's hosed me a couple of times when I've, when I've left it. And I'll, so I'll talk about that. So, <laughs> so I have the temperature in the meat. I've got the temperature and, and you set it. And you set it. And so if the temperature gets too hot, it slows the auger. If it gets too low, then it increases the rate. And so you don't have to, it's like an oven. Like it just keeps the same temperature. Yeah. So, yeah. so especially if you're, you've got your alpha coaching experience, you're a full-time anesthesiologist, you've got three kids, you're writing a book, right? Like, like you don't have time to tend to what real smokers call a stick burner which is where you get these like logs that you split or maybe you buy them split and you need to feed them into this offset thing and you need to increase the airflow or decrease the airflow and feed the fire and look we don't we don't have time for that and so with a pellet grill you get to smoke the meat without having to um tend to it at all like it's it, it is literally set it and forget yeah that, I, i'll be honest that was a huge thing for me now that you're mentioning that I actually you know we had this big golf tournament so i love golf i'm not good at it those are different things but we had this big golf tournament right and um and so like i was getting ready for it and and you know i wanted to go to the the range for an hour or two to like you know get ready for this tournament and i i cooked ribs that day and it was like the three hour portion at the beginning and i you know i set it i went to the you know the range for a couple hours came back and uh and it was doing its thing but you're right if you if, if for at least for the one that i have if you don't kind of i don't know what the word i want to use is but disturb the pellets just to make sure that they're they're just they're actually going into the auger uh yeah. it, it will it will turn off <laughs> and so well, what 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 happened with mine is what i need to do is between cooks i need to disassemble it i need to clean out the auger i need to grab a handful of pellets i need to put new ones in because what happens is the auger will overfill and then you've got like this and then it 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 can't it just shuts off i mean mm -hmm. you're getting up with this big plume of smoke it looks like it's on fire it's not actually on fire it's a smoker it's just putting out tons of smoke the temperature goes drops down and then you're screwed so if you're too far away from home you're yep. done i mean and every time that's happened to me i'd had to take the meat off and put finish it in the oven like you can't like oh wow i mean i could disassemble it keep the meat off for a little bit i guess but you know it's such a it's such a it's such a pain yeah. So, so Brad, Brad, I'm curious, what, what's your, what's your, you've got a lot more experience with this. What, what's your favorite meat to smoke? So I've found Chuck to be pretty foolproof. So we're, we're Jewish. And so we yeah. keep this like kosher style. My sure. wife and I, like it, it's, the story is like, I used to keep kosher style in and out of the house. Um, but then when we got married, we, you know, met somewhere in the middle. So we're like, we'll keep kosher style in the house, but out of the house, we can eat whatever we want. You know, it's, yeah. It makes sense to us. It's like, okay. we're, we don't practice that much. We don't go to synagogue or anything. I mean, eventually my kids are going to go to, you know, Hebrew school and get bar mitzvah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but like, so we don't have pork in the house, which is awful for us because, you know, it's time to feel bad for me a little bit. Because <laughs> we would be, so, my, my wife actually teaches baking classes and cooking classes at a local farm slash bakery. Uh. And I smoke the meat. Like she makes a sourdough. So between the two of us, we would do pork so well.
Mm, like we would. could, we could, it's real, we're really missing out here. Like we yeah. could, if we cooked pork in the house, it would be really good. So I'm limited to, uh, you know, chicken, fish and, and beef. And so I've, I do brisket, um, and it's come out well, most of the time, but not yeah. all the time. Whereas Chuck, if you screw it up, it doesn't really matter that much because you're pulling it apart anyway, you're making pulled beef. Yeah. And so if the fat like drips off of it, you're mixing it back into it. So it really doesn't matter that much. And you add yeah. some sauce and, yeah, and, it, and it's good. So Chuck is, Chuck is, is, is Chuck, Chuck's the way to go, huh? Favorite. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've got a solution actually for your problem. So you can just cook the pork and give it to me and I will consume <laughs> it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I, so I really want to do a brisket, but I'm not going to lie. I, it, it scares me a little bit after I read about it and how people can screw it up. And it does take 10 to 14 hours to like cook something that may not turn out good. Uh, but you know, it's at, a commitment. Yeah. At some point I just gotta, you know, gotta jump in there and, and do it. So, you know, well, you just try it. So here's, here's, here's the key, right? One of the keys is dry brining. So you have to dry brine the meat for two reasons. One is because it makes it more flavorful. And by dry brine, I mean like, you know, put, put salt on it. I, we put brown sugar in our, in our dry brine and mm. it's not, you know, you can get a pre-mixed one, but if you do, I, I, recommend you put mix some extra brown sugar in like a lot of brown sugar you first actually you coat it with mustard as a okay. binder meaning it gets all that stuff to stick so you coat it with mustard crappy yellow mustard it doesn't make it a mustardy flavor because all of that's going to evaporate and burn off anyway and what you're left is just like the powdery spices that are that are part of the mustard um, and then you put on your rub and then you wrap it in saran wrap and you leave it in the fridge overnight and so then the that dry rub and uh, we do this with salmon too, huh. when we smoke salmon, and it's awesome. It makes the salmon so flavorful. So, so you you do this dry rub the night before, and uh, it helps it to form a crust, helps flavor. And it, it the the best part about it is it traps in the moisture because all that salt that gets into the meat is then going to hang on to the. I don't know what the right chemistry term is. I mean, we're we're doctors here. Like I should probably know. It's like the osmotic pressure. I was a chemistry major, like and I can't help you. So, yeah. <laughs> No, nothing. Got nothing. Somehow, but you know, it, it's it's gonna hang on to the 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 moisture for longer because as you're doing this long cook, you're gonna dry out the meat, you're gonna turn it into jerky. And so if you dry brine the right before, it helps to to hang on to some of that moisture. Um so you dry brine it, wrap it in saran wrap the next day, you know, first thing in the morning, you get that brisket on. Mm -hmm. And what's eventually gonna happen after four or five hours is you're gonna hit something called the rest. And the rest for a, someone who's never been through it before is terrifying because you're like, the temperature is not changing. It's not changing. It's at 145 degrees, maybe it's 160 degrees. And you're like, it's been an hour and the temperature has not gone up in the meat. I don't know what to do. So when it hits the rest, what I do, that's when I wrap it. So I wrap it in foil and then eventually you, I, you can either finish it off in the, in the oven or you can finish it off in the, in the smoker if you're not you know, concerned about burning, burning your pellets. So wrap it in foil. That's going to trap in the moisture. Recently, I tried doing it without wrapping it. Mm -hmm. Dried out. Dried oh. out. I had read on like a Facebook forum. People were like, yeah, I do it without wrapping all the time. It's like, sure, it's a pain in the ass to, to do that in the middle of my day. Like now I don't have to worry about it. I'll just, you know, set my temperature probe to my alarm goes off of my phone when it hits the right temperature. Great. Now I don't have to do anything. So I right. tried it and I screwed up a bunch of meat. Right. So um well and brisket's expensive too right 
brisket has gotten yeah and it's gotten even pricier it's gotten even pricier yeah so so brisket brisket is not cheap chuck is relatively cheap though so if you're if you're afraid of brisket try chuck first and see how it goes you know get a bunch of them from from costco that's where we get our meat it's, yeah yeah i'll, I'll, have, to try, I'll have to try the chuck first i'm also kind of curious though you know as we're talking about smoking do you, do you guys sous vide at all that's something that i've seen in a lot of those facebook groups i mean for me it's like boiling it steaming it i mean it just sounds i i get it i actually did something i've seen that for for like a reverse sear mm -hmm. right so you get your meat to the rare temperature to the perfect temperature in the sous vide yep and then you let it cool and then you sear it mm -hmm. so now you've got it's rare and then you've got the maillard reaction whatever it is that reaction that's just you're not trapping it for the, for the listeners. When you sear something, you're not trapping anything in. You're not. You're creating just. You're caramelizing it. You're creating a different flavor on the outside. It's called the. I think it's the Maillard reaction. So you're not trapping anything in, but you're just adding a different bunch of flavors to it. So, yeah. So, uh, no, I haven't tried it. Although I did reverse sear a tenderloin recently. Oh. And it was awesome. So I I smoked it on the smoker for like three hours. Uh huh until it reached an internal of like, I think it was 120, 125, let it cool for a bit and then broiled it in the oven. Cause the thing with our smokers, at least with mine is it doesn't get super, super hot. Yeah, no. So I just, it was like 15 minutes in the broiler and then it came out, came yeah. out awesome. So, yeah. what, so what, what's your deal with sous vide? Yeah, so that's actually kind of, so I, I grew up and uh, didn't really know anything about cooking. And I remember I was, I was actually in a, CT anesthesia case in, in residency. And this one guy like just kept talking about sous vide, you know, and, and how he's got this dual sous vide device and, and it's like this immersion warmer and how, you know, it gets the meat to the perfect temperature. And that was like my first foray into kind of cooking, to be honest with you. Um, you started and, with sous vide. Yeah. I don't really well, cook much, but I'm going to try it's, this water bath. And the reason why, because I talked to him, it was just so simple. Like, you, I mean, yeah. you, you put the meat, like, you, you know, you get the flavor on it. You know, you know, if it's chicken or something like that, you put my like, rosemary and a few other things, garlic on it. And like, you basically put it in a bag, put it in this pot, and then you got the immersion warmer that just, you know, swirls the water around at the temperature. And, and it will, you know, you, you do it for a certain amount of time, depending on how big the meat is, what the temperature is you want, like whether it's pork chops or chicken or whatever. And, um, and I'll be honest, like it really does make that consistency pretty much perfect every time. You can over sous vide something if you keep it in too long. There used to be like this old wives' tale that you know if, if you if you you know keep it in there, like it can never go bad. And it's like no, no. If if you if you, if you screw it in that thing long like, enough, it, it you, definitely you turns that into bag mush. up, and it just like you pour the meat out. Yeah, it's, it's just, just disgusting. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's totally disgusting. But you know, it, it is uh, also a Wi-Fi device, and so you can control it from your phone in terms of when, when you start it, when you stop it. And, um, and yeah, so we, we don't do it a, a ton anymore now that I've got the smoker. Cause that's kind of become the, the thing that I enjoy doing, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I found it to be a pretty easy way to, to do chicken or pork chops, you know, and, uh, and then I would take it outside and I would sear it on my gas grill. Um, and, uh, and, and really, you know, is, is a really simple way and it doesn't in like an hour or two, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty painless process. Uh, if, if smoking, you're like listening to, you know, to us right now and, and you're like six to 12 hours. I mean, that's a, that's a really long time. Like I guess sous vide is not smoking just for the record. It's not smoking, but I also have sous vide. I don't, know, I don't even know what the word is for that. I have gone through the process of using a sous vide uh, <laughs> right? and uh, on, on ribs too. There's a way to do it with ribs. And so, um, you know, I'd put them in a cooler 
and sous vide the cooler uh, with ribs in it, St. Louis style ribs too. It's like you can wait, wait. What do you mean sous vide the cooler? I don't understand so, the like. So, so this device, it's like a conical device. It's probably I don't know three inches, four inches in diameter, and um, and it's got it's got a blade in it that you know swirls the water around in whatever device in whatever uh, container you put it in. So whether it's a okay. metal a metal pan a metal uh, you know just whatever. I mean, you name it, like pan, whatever. Or in a cooler, like, I mean, like an ice cooler, like you'd, like you'd bring to a, a, a sporting event or the beach, right? Like, and so for ribs, it obviously has to be much larger than like, you know, just a, a normal pan, right? Okay. Uh, and so you can use a cooler and put the sous vide in it and it clips, it has a clip on it. And so you just make okay. sure that it's below the water level and it okay. will warm up that, that body of water. Uh, so it circulates the water and heats it to the temperature. Correct. So it's and like a it, heating and coil it slash it exa- at rotator. that exact yeah, temperature, yeah, yeah. which okay. is so it's basically like the idea of a smoker, but in water. Okay. Um, you know, okay. it's, it, it is a low and slow kind of process. Now, if you do ribs, it does take a very long time. It's a, you know, kind of a multiple day process. Uh, but for chicken, pork chop, something really simple, easy, couple hours sort of thing. Um, it, it's a it's a easy fix if you don't want to go through the process for a six to 12 hour cook. How do you flavor the meat? In so, the sous vide, it's like, so you're putting these things in the bag with it and somehow yeah. it like, you're putting so, like whole sprigs of ro- rosemary or you're like putting a rub on. Yeah. So, so you can probably do either, but you know, whole sprigs of rosemary for like the chicken with garlic and uh, you know, a couple other, and, and, and it will flavor the meat is in there. And, and some people, I mean, it can be as simple as putting it in a gallon size bag after you do that. Uh, and you, you can also brine the meat the same way you were talking about earlier. So you can brine it beforehand. Um, Got it. But uh, you, you can then just put in a gallon size bag, and put a clip on it. Uh, but the people that are, you know, doing it, uh, you know, quote unquote properly, they get, you know, sealers, right? And then they can just drop the, they seal the entire meat in like a vacuum sealer and then put the- Yeah, those, put that's that, what I've seen, yeah. Put that bag inside inside the container, whatever you're using to, to sous vide. Um, yeah. But uh, it's the same idea. It's a low, you know, slow, steady temperature that's just consistent. Um, Wait, so of, you're just using a Ziploc bag? Uh, you're putting uh, the meat in like a Ziploc bag and- like trying to get as much water out of it, I guess. Yeah. So once the before meat, you zip it up. Yeah. So once once the water's heated up, and you put the Ziploc bag in, it will naturally kind of kind of crimp on the the meat and release the gas. Um, okay. And so and then you can just like literally just clip to the side. I actually I have an actual vacuum sealer now, also from my my father in law because that's just yeah this is his thing. Um, but uh, but back in the day, yeah, when I started, I would just use the the gallon sized bags and just you know let the let the water the air release after you put it in. Uh, and then just clip it and put it on the side of the side of the thing that, you know, whatever you're using. Nice, 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 yeah. nice. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, because that's what we need in our kitchen, in our house. More stuff. Yeah, of course. More yeah, it's another appliance. My, my wife yeah. loves just, you know, tons and tons of appliances in our kitchen. Actually, uh, it's I, I say that jokingly, but uh, to this day, we, we've been married for, oh, man, 13 years. Yeah, about to be 13 years. And uh we do not own a toaster. So who needs toast? Yeah. Who, 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 you who can make the, you make that in a frying pan. Yeah. Or the oven. Or the oven. There you go. <laughs> That's which is completely inappropriate use of an oven, by the way. But it works. No toaster. I'm trying to think if we're missing anything, but I think the answer is no. We have we have just an inordinate number of appliances between my uh you know, meat hobby and her baking and cooking. We've got we've got a lot of stuff. Although one day I want to get a pizza oven. And actually that's the the tomato, the um, you know, I'm still 
noodling with the idea of maybe getting a tomato once my kids are a little older and more self-sufficient yeah uh, like the big green egg that's what you're talking yep. about like you can use that like a pizza oven yeah you can get it really hot really and hot. then you can you, you put the pizza on it you could also use it like a smoker and it tends to be one that you don't have to tend you don't have to sounds redundant you don't have to tend to because it's so well insulated that once you get it to the right temperature then you don't have to mess around with it you just keep the meat in there until it's done and then you got your like wi-fi thermometers that are giving you all the information you need yeah no i've, I've got a couple of friends that you know uh will swear by the green egg or the komodo komodo however you say that uh and uh and and they love it and they do pizzas on it all the time um so it's it's i i think that it's just a fun hobby to get into, honestly. Like, you know, I bought it for my father-in-law, but I've really enjoyed it now. Um, the Chuck, I guess, is next, and then maybe the brisket after that. Yes. So, a couple recommendations. A couple recommendations. Um, so, one, I got smoke tubes. Smoke tubes. What's a smoke, smoke tube? Smoke tube. So, a smoke tube is like, it's like a hexagonal, like, cylinder-shaped thing that's metal and has a lot of holes in it. And okay. what you do is... It, bit of a pain in the butt to get it started but then it it slowly burns the pellets along the cylinder so it's a way to add smoke so one of the problems that people have with pellet smokers is they don't give a lot of smoke flavor and that's been my experience as well especially with a slower uh, uh, with a shorter smoke yeah so if you compare the smoke flavor of a pellet smoker to a stick burner or i actually when i first got into smoking i used a gas smoker mm. um because i was like it's the cheapest one and it seems to be the easiest one to just set and forget aside from pellet, which are significantly more expensive. So I was like, I got to try this ho hobby out with something cheap to see if I'm actually going to do it. And so the way the, the propane ones work is they just have a pan where you put the, um, these little smoke chips that a propane burner under it is going to slowly burn and turn to smoke. It's similar to the way the electric ones work. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you have a, a water pan above it to make sure that you're, not drying out your meat as much and and that's it and so you can turn up and down the temperature um it's not an internal loop though i think okay. there's one out there by masterbuilt that does self-regulate but I've, I've heard that tray isn't that big so then you have to constantly feed in more chips um and the smoke flavor was really good and when i switched to the pellet smoker i was like this this is not the same like it's just it is not that smoky tasting especially when i'm doing a chicken or fish which is not on it because you're not slow cooking those things if you slow right. cook them you're going to dry them out so you have to just use it like an oven so if you got a smoke tube or two which is what i do you get those started and then you they're putting out much more smoke on top of what your smoker is doing but it's not adding to the temperature because it's just kind of slowly burning these so where, where do you physically put this smoke tube uh just on top of the grill oh cool yeah is this like yeah. something I can get from like Amazon? Yeah, for like 20, 30 bucks, maybe. Nice. Something like that. And you just put the pellets in there. And then the other thing is finding the right pellets. So I prefer 100% hickory pellets because mm. they're, I think, the one of the only pellets that has a strong, so hickory has a relatively strong flavor. Um, mesquite has an even stronger flavor, but the mesquite ones are never 100% mesquite. There's like a lot of filler in there because oh. I think otherwise it wouldn't work as a pellet. Like it wouldn't burn appropriately or totally or hot enough or so hickory is the way to quickly. go like yeah yeah so so 100 hickory and then um yeah and then the smoke tubes help when you're doing something like fish so fish if you look up how to smoke fish it's going to tell you like salmon salmon's actually the only fish that i've smoked um it's going to tell you that you need to 
wet brine it and then dry it and blah, 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 blah. And then you've got all these steps to do, which I did once and it was good, but it was such a pain in the ass. So what one of my friends is like, dude, it's full of fat. Fat is what soaks up the smoke flavor. Just use it like an oven. Just cook like you normally would, which I did on the gas smoker and it tasted awesome. Then tried it on the pellet, wasn't enough smoke. But now I do it on a little lower temperature with two smoke tubes and then it tastes smoky, but still not as smoky as it did on my gas smoker. That is so, really interesting. So ga gas smoker produces more smoke taste, but it's less expensive. Yes, but it doesn't have the, that internal loop. Cause it's just like, it's just like a, a metal frame that's poorly insulated and then a, a ring on the bottom where the propane comes out and that's it. Like that's the whole setup. So you're not paying for all the, you know, Wi-Fi connectivity and temperature probes and all the stuff that come yeah. with our, our pellet grills. Like it's, it's not a mechanical, you know, it's just like a, you, there's a little regulator on how much propane comes out at once. That's the whole device. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, sounds like I need to get some smoke tubes. Yes. I would strongly recommend smoke tubes. You, there's an affiliate link on my website. Oh, boom. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I just made that up. I don't have any <laughs> totally affiliate links on be. my website. Am Amazon affiliates <laughs> to the rescue. I should. I should. I should. That's, that's going to be the next iteration of my website is I will actually have affiliate links. Yeah. The, the show is so actually sponsored by smoke tubes, right? Yeah. Smoketubes.com. <laughs> Smoketubes.com. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I, it, it's been, it's been a fun, fun little project to, uh, to kind of get into. And, and, and actually the only thing even similar to this that I ever did, uh, was brew beer. I used to brew beer back before my, so I got three kids. My, my son is now eight and it's probably around the time he was born, maybe a little after that, that, that I stopped, uh, you know, but I used to love to brew beer. Uh, but, to, it, but that was like, you can't, you can't walk away from that process. <laughs> got like a turkey There's burner actually... and a giant, you know, 10 gallon thing of, Hot, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite brewery on Long Island, because there are, I mean, there's so many microbrews everywhere. My favorite on Long Island is run by an anesthesiologist. I don't know if he's oh. practicing anymore. I think he's probably doing the beer full time because it's so successful. What's it called? Great South Bay Brewery. So the Great, Great South Bay is South like between, between like the, I think Fire Island and, yeah. and Long Island. Uh, the great south bay yeah and uh so great south bay brewery I'll, yeah i'll, have to, I'll have to check that one out yeah because ne next time i come to new york i uh i, I <laughs> you guys also have my favorite uh bar that i've ever been to it's called the dead rabbit it's in the wall street district interesting and, and uh i just happened to be there to give a conference one time this guy's like you got to check this place out and, like you walk into the to the bar there and if you just like walk in and don't realize that there's an upstairs like you'll just go in and it seems like a normal bar, but like there's a place where you can like write your name down. They give you like a little beeper and then it, it's like you get put on a wait list. Like a speakeasy and, type of thing. Yeah. It's exactly what it's like. Uh, and uh, you go upstairs and they've got this like, you know, more secluded area and you can sit at the bar, watch them make the drinks and talk to the the bartenders. They've got the special kind of book uh, that, that walks. The, it's, it's really pretty cool. Um, and so next, next time I go, I have to check out that brewery and go back to the dead rabbit. Dead rabbit link on the link in the show notes. No, actually, probably not. <laughs> Smoking meat, drinking beer. That's 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 the life. That's the life. Well, Jimmy, it has been a lot of fun catching up with you and talking smoking meat and sous vide with you. 
we're going to need another device in our kitchen and uh alpha coaching so where can people find you online where can we find your uh, your online presence yeah the, i mean the best way to to find my stuff is to use the same podcast player you're listening to right now and go to the physician philosopher podcast uh we talk about money and mindset and if you want to learn more you can go to the physicianphilosopher.com and uh, we've got uh, more information there too as well jimmy turner thanks so much for your time thanks for having me brad ton of fun that was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Up next, we're tackling one of the most common challenges physicians face, charting. Dr. Junaid Niazi, a board-certified internist and physician life coach, shares his insights on conquering the world of charts and maximizing your time. From the power of Parkinson's law to the art of productivity, Dr. Niazi's wisdom will help you reclaim your precious moments and go home on time. It has certainly worked for me and can work for you. Dr. Junaid Niazi is a board-certified internist and pediatrician who works as a primary care physician for a large healthcare organization in the Upper Midwest by day. And by night, he's known as Prosperous Life MD. He's a physician life coach, and he blogs and coaches physicians on all things wellness, productivity, finances, and careers. He also has a group coaching program to help physicians complete their charting at work, and that's why he's on the show today. His interest in charting also landed him as an information services medical director, where he optimizes the EHR for physician use and patient care. He's going to help you conquer your charts and go to home on time. How? By standing over you and forcing you to finish the chart before moving on to the next patient. How? By convincing you that whatever you can do with the extra time is going to be more rewarding than whatever it is that you're doing to waste time instead of finishing your charts. Are my kids more fun than scrolling on Twitter? It's what I do to mess around. Usually. What's your reward? Finish your charts. We also talk about Parkinson's law and why it isn't some forgotten formula from physics class or your neurology rotation, and how realizing its truth will help you get stuff done. He's also anti-to-do list. How is that possible? So we talk about why to-do lists are the devil and make you feel like garbage and ultimately less productive. Dr. Niazi completed his undergrad studies at Rice University, medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, and residency at the University of Minnesota. He's married to a pediatrician and has two lovely rambunctious toddlers. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Before we get into the show, let's talk about this week's sponsor, Deputy. In healthcare, there are smart pieces of technology that businesses can't live without. Deputy has become one of those essential platforms for more than 250,000 workplaces. It's helping medical practices schedule their staff more efficiently to meet peaks in patient demand. and makes it easy to adjust schedules when the unexpected happens, like staff calling out sick. You can use Deputy on any device on the go. Within a few minutes of picking it up, you'll see why it has hundreds of glowing reviews from managers and staff alike. To find out more and try Deputy for free, 
Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. Dr. Junaid Niazi, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. Really excited to be here. So tell us your charting coaching origin story. How does one go from mild-mannered physician to a charting coach? I'll, I'll talk about how I got on, got to charting a, l- a little bit later, but just how I got on coaching in general first, if that's okay. Yeah, please. So I did everything that doctors always do. Went to, you know, got good grades, high school, college, et cetera. Went to med school, went to residency, got my first attending job. And I was like, hey, I've made it, right? So this is it. But it just seemed like despite this supposedly being it, it just wasn't right. It just seemed like there were parts of my life that weren't really working. And, you know, I slowly started to come around and realize that I was just sort of burning out working in uh, primary care medicine. A lot of that had to do with just the disillusionment with the system. And I'd personally subscribe to the FIRE mentality, so that financial independence, retire early idea, which is, you know, you work hard, you earn a lot in a few for a few years, and then you, you pull the cord uh, to do whatever you want to do. And that didn't quite feel right. And it was creating a lot of uh, scarcity for me. So, you know, more than just not wanting to spend money, it was coming from a place of lacking rather than really being cognizant of acknowledging and and even being grateful for all that I do and that I do have. Sorry, could you expound on that a little bit or rather expand on that a little bit? What do you mean by like you were experiencing, you were just like paring down so much on your expenses that it just, it became a source of stress rather than a source of fulfillment? I wasn't even paring down that much on, on expenses. You know, we, my wife and I are both just naturally frugal we have a a, a good savings rate but it was more when you're approaching everything from this mentality of i just need to do this for you know five ten years whatever and then i'm I'm done i'm doing my time so to speak you're really approaching life from this place of, of of scarcity and that seeps out into the rest of your life you don't you really start taking for granted all the good things all the good parts of your life and i think that exacerbates burnout for a lot of physicians. I think that's why a lot of physicians feel even more trapped in medicine than they otherwise would just from the burnout that they're experiencing. Does that help clarify? It's almost like a paradox. Like you choose this fire lifestyle or or rather you're trying to get into this fire lifestyle so that you don't need to work. And then you find out, hey, I can work just for the love of it. But in the meantime, you're hating it because you have to it's like a mindset mindset shift that really just messes with you. You're running from something. Yeah. I think that's the problem. In, in life, if you find yourself running from things, that usually leads you nowhere. You need to be running towards something. And you hear this a lot when people retire, right? So a lot of older physicians, if they don't have something, quote unquote, to retire to, they either come back to medicine a year later or they sort of feel lost or, or dissatisfied with their post-career life. Or they just lurk around the doctor's lounge and watch Fox News and complain. <laughs> Yeah, whatever floats their boat, exactly. (laughs) But those that like, there's some that, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to travel, I have everything planned out, they're retiring to something. And I think it's that same sort of mental shift that a lot of us need to have. And that's what I was lacking. I think I was one foot out the door with medicine. And that affects how you show up in everything, too. I was sort of grappling with these types of mindset things. And I don't think I was necessarily aware of them at the time. But I stumbled across the Life Coach School podcast, which is hosted by Brooke Castillo, who's a master life coach. And I really 
started to binge her content, right? So I'd always, to that point, thought coaching was very sort of woo-woo, fluffy sort of material. But she was presenting it in a very sort of sensical, straightforward fashion that incorporated psychology and neuroscience. So there was a sense of familiarity with that, just with, you know, my medical background. And she really promotes self-coaching. So actually work, learning a system to coach yourself. And I'd st- I started dabbling in that, doing it more and more. And I started to see some changes in what I was thinking. I started recognizing patterns in my life that weren't serving me and, you know, including on work, money, parenting, you, you, you name it. And I started to become like more satisfied with where I was in this moment in all of those domains. And so it felt like a weight was lifting or, you know, curtains were opening, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. And when you start understanding through coaching that the results in your life are really driven by your thoughts and not necessarily the circumstances in your life, that is actually a very empowering realization because you, the nidus of control of your life then resides with you, not with those external circumstances. And I was really prior to that abdicating my autonomy to those circumstances, right? This is happening to me. That is happening to me versus now I'm like, hey, that, that's happening and I get to choose what I think about that and how I show up in regards to that. So the real, the next step really was I joined a physician group coaching program. If you're a male physician, this is actually tough because probably about 95, per, 95 plus percent of physician coaches out there are women, women physicians. And, you know, their niche is usually other women physicians. So it took me a couple of months to find a, a group coaching program. And then one of the women group coaching programs uh, decided to let me in, which was very generous of them and all the members involved. So uh, I did that for two months and sort of Having another physician who's trained as a life coach reflect back to me what I'm saying and show me what, what I'm thinking because the manifestation of our thoughts out loud as, as words is where people see what, what you're actually thinking and they can then tell you, hey, this is, these are, why are you thinking this? Or you can, they can show it to you and you can understand, oh, this is a pattern. Like I'm starting to see patterns of, of thought here. That just really accelerated the transformations for me and really just going through that process, I knew I wanted to go through a coaching school to learn skills for myself. And then also just for my my fellow physicians, a lot of coaches are specialists. And there's more and more primary care um, physician coaches coming up. But you know, I really wanted to share coaching with primary care, especially. So I actually signed up for the next cohort at the Life Coach School run by Brooke Castillo, who I mentioned uh, earlier. Went through that six-month training, came out of that. I actually did some coaching with Dr. Jimmy Turner of The Physician Philosopher. He has a, a program and did my own one-on-one coaching with other physicians. And with working with through Jimmy's program, I realized I kept chiming in on group coaching calls about things related to clinic workflows and efficiencies and charting. So, so Jimmy actually challenged me and said, hey, do you want to just do a focus call on this for our group members? And I said, yeah, sure. And that's sort of where my niche came from. I did this focus call and people responded to it very well. One person the day after that call implemented some of the stuff we talked about in clinic and she got home for the first time in her life at 530 and was able to eat dinner with her family where prior to that, she was staying in clinic till 9, 930. Wow, that's a dramatic difference. And so that's where I sort of stumbled across charting as a niche for coaching. I realized I was on to something and I said, hey, let me explore this further. And I actually went on to develop my own program and currently in my second cohort of physicians. So now, you know, I've helped dozens of physicians through my group program as well as uh, one-on-one. But you had a background in charting, right? Like through your hospital, right? You've been on committees or... Like you were able to incorporate another area of expertise and kind of mesh the two together. Certainly. So I always, you know, just entering primary care in this day and age obviously involves a lot of charting. My wife's a pediatrician too. And, you know, 
our first year out, we would be sitting on opposite ends of the couch every evening and many a weekend night just typing away at our keyboards. And this is before we had children. And I realized something's got to change. So I became very intentional examining my work day, you know, down to the every visit, seeing where am I spending my time? How can I make this better? How can I improve workflows? And there's a lot of navigation there, right? There's administrative burdens just from the organization you work for, you know, medical assistants in one organization can do X, Y, and Z and another organization they're not allowed to. So there was a lot of navigating that. But part of that interest led me to a role within the organization where I'm a, what's called an information services medical director, one of uh, five on the ambulatory side. So, you know, we try to make our EHR as user friendly for end users, as well as just making it better for clinical care. And, you know, where we fit in is We try to take sort of all the clinical background and mesh that into the decision making for any tools that are rolling out. And, you know, I think we're all on the same page where we're really just trying to make charting a little bit less of a burden. And one of our mantras is, hey, if they're putting something new in, we got to try to take something else out. Maybe we're harnessing a little bit of that uh, CMS mentality for budget neutrality here. But does that always work? Because sometimes with like, CMS requirements, they're not budget neutral. Like they always want to collect more information. So now you have to do this. Now you have to record that. Now you have to record this. So so are you able to to do that even though their requirements for data entry continue to increase? Yeah. So specifically for some of their, you know, for example, a Medicare wellness visit, there's new things coming in, quite a few new things coming in, in the last couple of months, and we can't stop those. But There are also other things that the EHR has designed itself to alert us to things. And a lot of that causes alert fatigue. A lot of it's not utilized. We actually ran some utilization reports and found, you know, over over an 18-month time period, 99% were ignored. So if they're ignored, they're clearly not serving any purpose. So we removed those ones that weren't serving any purpose at all. And you'd be surprised at how much stuff accumulates over time in an EHR, or maybe you're not surprised at all because you deal with all the data that accumulates in the EHR, but all the other stuff also accumulates all the alerts, all the prompts, everything. So yeah, if, you know, if we have to give in terms of if CMS says there's something that needs to be included, so we have to screen for substance use disorders. We also have to, uh, one of our local payers is making us screen for a urinary leakage. So okay, you got to do what they say that you got to do. That's specific. I know. So when you were, and this might be getting into the charting, but for yourself, what were some of the higher yield things that you noticed about yourself that helped you to become more efficient? Yeah. So two main things really drove my efficiency. The first one was learning to really type well during the visit while the patient was talking. And I actually, and this took a while, I learned and got have become very adept at writing down their last response, typing that while I'm asking a different question, which is like a brain teaser at first. Cause you just, yeah. uh, you, you know, when I first tried to do it, I'd you know, misphrase or, or mix up the two things, but that's like second nature now where I can just type what sort of what they said and uh, while I'm asking a new question. And that just took practice, honestly, and a lot of fumbling, but now it's very smooth. And the second one was making sure I did every chart, you know, closing it while the patient was there or right after the patient left before I went and saw the next patient. And that's paid off dividends. Even if you're running behind in clinic, your brain will offer up a thousand and one reasons why you can't do that. And, you know, all those reasons lead you to make a decision that'll later impact you and keep you stuck at work late. You know, before I did any of this, I was getting to know the janitorial staff at our clinic really well. I had the lights turned out on me, all kinds of things. Now that I have kids and daycare is right next to my work, I'm the one responsible for picking them up. So 
you know, I have to get out of there as fast as I can. And, you know, even in this year, COVID has been a little bit of an exception with getting called away to daycare, you know, early in the middle of the day, but accepting that, you know, maybe five days this year so far, I've, I've left charts after I've, uh, you know, I've had charts to do after I've left work. So, um, at like five, you know, five or five thirty. How do you get yourself to do it though? So the way it works in my brain is not finishing my chart is like eating cake. I want to eat cake and it requires a certain amount of willpower to not eat that cake. So eventually that willpower is going to wear away and I will eat my cake. I will not do my chart. I will let it go and then it'll accumulate and then it tends to snowball, right? You give yourself permission to skip one chart, you rationalize that, and then it's just chart after chart. So how do you get yourself to really stick to that? Well, your analogy is is on point because charting, like most of these other things, it's you can say it's easy, but it's not simple, just like dieting. It's we yeah, all know just how do to it. do just these chart. things. Yes, fine. You, you easy, just yes. do it. Exactly. But the execution, the discipline, the not succumbing to those urges, like you described, that's the hard part. So, you know, what I, through coach, you know, I figured out the strategy stuff first. Um, and then I discovered coaching later. So a lot of the, the, you know, the story I took you through about coaching that all, that's all been the last, you know, eight, yeah, probably eight, 18, um, to 20 months. And that mindset aspect that I gained through coaching really made things sort of fit within a system that made a lot more sense for me and made it way more easy to teach people rather than just telling you, hey, do this thing. Why can't you do it? But basically, to your question, if I want to actually get home to eat that cake with my kid, I know I need to finish my notes and finish my charts. So I know I'm making the decision now to deal with a little bit of discomfort because there's all kinds of things clamoring for my attention and my time when I'm at work. Phone calls, messages, lab, radiology, my nurse, everything. So I know I need to just, my priority is taking care of my patients, getting my charts closed so I can get home and spend time with my family and, you know, run a coaching business. Even if I did not have these efficiencies in place, I would not be able to have a business, right? Like there'd be no time for that. I'd just be charting at all hours. So I developed the discipline because I knew decisions made at while I was seeing had impacts down the line later in the day. And I realized a little bit of discomfort, which is now not discomfort for me. I, after you get used to it, you get over the hump. Just like if you're feeling, if you decide I'm not going to eat after eight o'clock at night, first couple, and you're somebody who usually has a snack before you go to bed, right? You're going to feel hungry for the first week or two. After you get over that discomfort, you won't feel it at all. It's similar to that. So now it's not even a thing. And even if I'm running behind, you know, our staff has been cut due to COVID. So a lot more, you know, in medicine, stuff flows uphill to the physician, unfortunately. There's been a lot more on my plate to get done. So there are some days, especially if I'm on call and we've had, we have physicians who are out on extended leaves for, you know, one reason or another. So now when you're on call, there's a lot more to deal with. And there's some days where I'm running, you know, 30, 40 minutes behind. And that's unusual for me. But I know even if I'm running behind, all my prior work, on it. You know, if I'm seeing patient number 15 of the day, my 14 other notes and charts are completely closed. Their meds are ordered. Referrals are in everything. I'm not worrying about any of that. I'm not juggling in my brain who had that murmur. 
gosh, you know, did we repeat that blood pressure on that one patient before they left because it was a little bit high? I'm not worrying about any of that. That's all taken care of. So I can focus on that patient. So even if I'm running late, I go in and see the patient. They know they have my undivided attention. I'm able to give that to them because I'm not distracted by all these. I describe them as barnacles that are just, you know, clutching onto your mental bandwidth. But when you do start running behind, don't you have that pull to stop finishing your charts? You get hungrier and that cake starts to look more delicious. I, I mean, I think initially, yeah, but, you know, I think now having built up that discipline, that doesn't happen as much. And I think about people who are successful at, at dieting, right? They're able to surf that urge. They're able to sit with that discomfort and realize one person's in the waiting room, the next one's already roomed. We build up that anxiety within ourselves. If you sit and recognize most patients don't mind waiting, you know, they probably spend a couple minutes in the waiting room. We try to move them as fast as possible just because of COVID, get them out of the waiting room. They don't mind spending 10 minutes, 15 minutes, a little bit longer in the waiting room. And as long as I can sit with that discomfort, I'm okay with that. That's yeah. sort of the discipline. Everyone has those patients that, that get upset with them for, for running late. And for whatever reason, I had prior to COVID, I had one patient who came like an hour early for her appointment. And after sitting in the exam room for 45 minutes, was just storming the hallways, livid that I hadn't come to see her. Her appointment time hadn't even started. It was still like 15 minutes before her appointment time. You know, people are going to people. Actually, I had a patient recently who who was upset about the wait time. It was last patient of the day. It happens. Yeah. You know, I apologize, as I do. I said, but this is going to happen with me from time to time. If you want someone who's going to run more on time than me, I can refer you to another doctor. I know this doctor tends to run more on time than me, which is great. Yeah. I don't have to deal with that anymore. You know, patients tend to self-select for maybe providers who yeah. practice a certain way or whose attitudes match. And that's that might be the right thing for that patient, right? Yeah. Maybe that's a better fit. So what about some other charting techniques, right? Like what about the importance of dictation, carry forward comments, templates, scribes, like some of the other tricks and tools and things like that? Are, are, is that part of your philosophy, your management style? All of these things are tools that you may or may not have in your arsenal. Some people don't have scribes available to them. We don't. You know, scribes, a lot of people think scribes are going to be that silver bullet that fix everything for them. But really, it depends on how you use your scribe, right? They can create a lot more work for you that all gets dropped at you at the end of the day, for example, when you need to get home. So then you're actually delaying closing your charts for 24 hours or, or whatever until you come back the next day. And that might not work for you, right? So they also require training if if everyone has a unique practice style, a unique clinic workflow, so that you have to train them to get them to work within your own workflow. And then they can be a relatively high turnover of scribes. But you can train a scribe and you can use them very efficiently. I still encourage people, and I've had actually good success with some of the physicians I've coached who have scribes, by getting them to, again, finish that visit right after they step out of the room and then finish that entire note and chart with the scribe. Because several reasons, right? A, everything's fresh in both of your guys' minds. B, you can give them direct feedback as you guys are going through the note and everything. Say, hey, you wrote it like this, like, no, this is what I meant. Or when I say this, you can give that direct feedback, which maybe if you're reviewing late at night, you're thinking, oh, I need to tell the scribe to do X, Y, or Z. And then the next day you've, you've forgotten already. So I helped one academic endocrinologist who has a scribe who had a backlog of 400 plus charts. And within eight weeks, which was actually the length of the program, she completed that entire backlog and her scribe and her MA. She actually got her MA on board with a lot of this stuff too. She could only see 12 patients a day prior to that. She was seeing 16 to 18 patients a day and finishing all her work. 
because she was able to, she realized she, she had to work on herself and she had to work on her team, including her scribe and just charting as you go made the, was one of the pivotal things that made a big difference for them. Yeah. You mentioned the scribe being the silver bullet that, that solves everything. That's what I was going to rely on because I have this problem. I get behind, I don't do my charts. I don't walk in the room with the computer sometimes. And just cause I, you know, it's easier for me to then just chat and build rapport without the computer as the barrier. So, all right. A lot of this may or may not be true or may just be me rationalizing. And then I do it at the end of the day and I screw around, I'll scroll on Twitter or whatever. So, but no, once I get that scribe, then none of that will happen. So what you're saying really speaks, I feel like you've been watching me and this oh, is how you've yeah. come up with your commentary. Well, so I'm sure this applies to a ton of our listeners. Well, you just have to make sure the the issues that were keeping you from getting your work done you know, you actually are intentional in addressing them in working with the scribe. And that way you'll knock them out, hopefully. You mentioned a couple other things, uh, dictation, a similar thing. So we have dictation available in my institution. I tried it for a while. It made my notes longer and less useful, frankly, because I, I don't know why. <laughs> I guess I felt compelled to talk in full sentences. So I actually stopped dictating because in my EHR, I can track the length of my notes and the length of my note went up about 30 to 40%. And the content I don't think was any better. So I said, I'm making my notes trimmer. And again, you know, I do most of my typing in the room. So it just didn't work for my workflow. I have some, you know, some physicians, especially surgeons really like dictating. And a lot of them have really good workflows for during the visit or immediately after the visit, hammering out their dictation and and and, and they're golden. So uh, dictation can work really well for charting as you go. You mentioned carrying forward comments. I assume you mean like copying forward your last note? Yeah. Exactly. Or like using the previous physical exam. That sometimes is part of an EHR. No, I actually, I think that's great. The first thing I do after I copy forward a note though, is I go and put in, you know, we use Epic and we can use a little a wild card, meaning uh, something that just stands, it's like a placeholder where I can't sign the note or close the chart unless it's addressed. So I just put that in every section, you know, subjective, objective, assessment and plan, forcing me to actually review those sections, right? Because if you just if my last note on the patient was a pre-op for an ampu you know, an amputation or something, and then suddenly they're a limb, you know, they're down a limb and I'm saying, oh, you know, all the normal extremity exam, you know, it's, it's that's poor form and, and, and a poor showing on my part. So putting in those wild cards forces me to review. But I love copying forward notes because I just look at my last assessment and plan, update my HPI based on that, and I can set my agenda way better for the upcoming, for the visit of that day. And especially with, you know, a lot of the the new E&M coding changes where all the time on that day spent on the encounter counts towards the new time limits. A couple of minutes pre-charting, you know, can help take you to a level four, potentially even a level five, just depending on the nature of the visit and how much time you're spending. So I think uh, copying forward notes is a great way to amplify your pre-charting. Is there anything else that you want to mention about charting? Because I also, like, you had spoken about just efficiency in general, like life efficiency. So I want to get to that just, just a little bit. So is there anything else you want to mention about charting? You know, just a plug for something called Parkinson's Law. This is, a, this guy was a, he was a naval academy officer in the British Navy. And then he was a, a sort of a civil servant afterward. And he was one of those people that actually hated being a civil servant and just, you know, bashed it constantly and wrote satire about it. And he came up with this law, which basically 
was he came up with several things. The funniest one was he actually created a very complex mathematical formula, which showed you that the amount of civil servants, if the number of civil servants goes up in a government, efficiency will drop. And he was very proud of his official formula. But the one, the law that's best that's ascribed to him that sort of is most useful is says that basically work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. So think about your work day, right? So if you can confine all of your work between whatever your hours are, 7 to 5.30 or whatever, look at that as your time frame for getting work done. If you go home with the expectation that you're going to just do your charts after the kids go to bed or, or whatever, or you're going to wake up early to do your charting, you've now opened up the entire rest of your day to getting that work done, which is a big part of the reason you work so much slower when you're at home. People wonder, like, you know, one client I worked with, we, we calculated the time she spent on a chart, and it was 48 minutes per chart when she was at home. What would probably take her five, maybe 10 minutes at work was taking her 48 minutes at home. Because subconsciously, you know, you're like, I have all this time, I can just stay up later, I can just wake up earlier. I've had one person who was in one of my trainings, who basically said they were sleeping 45 minutes a night, because they were staying up late to chart, they were waking up early to chart. And I mean, clearly, how long can you function on 45 minutes of sleep? Like, I can't. So sounds like there's a impending seizure there. Oh. <laughs> right badness will ensue. So I really encourage physicians, find ways to constrain your work to work. Otherwise, it's going to eat up all the rest of your time. And that's your, you know, time is a, a non-renewable resource. It's our most valuable resource. You deserve to have a life outside of medicine. Find a way to constrain your work to your work. Yeah, it's like when I wrote papers in school, right? Like you save it for the last minute and then you get super efficient when it's that last night. But if it, if the deadline had been different, then you would have gotten it done sooner. You just have to give yourself that deadline and then you will be more efficient. Like those days that you need to pick up your kids from school mm -hmm. or daycare are the days that you're going to be super efficient about making sure that you get it all done. If you say that I have to get it done, because at least for me, it's harder to use my EHR from home. So I'm significantly more inefficient. So I really don't want to do it. So I don't leave until all is done. Which, you know, she just started working part-time again, but she's home at bedtime every night. So I don't have to be there, but like you yeah. had said, but the cake is not screwing around on Twitter instead of finishing my charts. The cake is bedtime with the kids. So exactly. you have to just change. You have to be that two marshmallow kid, right? The one that, <laughs> that delayed gratification. You give them one marshmallow. Yep. Yeah. If you eat it now, you only get one. If you eat it later, I'll give you a second one. So you got to just change your perspective on what cake is. Why am I doing this? Change your, your why a little bit. Absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned sort of productivity in general. And one of the things I'm a, a big fan of is showing people how their to-do lists are actually one of the biggest problems to them getting stuff done in general. I don't believe it. Yeah. But I don't believe it because <laughs> I wouldn't remember what I need to do without said list. Yeah. So a to-do list, you know, I say to-do lists have two functions. One of them, one of them you just described, right? It's to do that brain dump, to capture all the tasks you need to get done and get them out of your working memory. That's one. Number two is sort of as a, a safety net to just make sure you don't miss any major or urgent tasks. 
Those are the really the two functions of a to-do list. You might notice I didn't state anywhere that the point of a to-do list is to actually get those things done, right? So that requires building a system around your to-do list, which most people don't do or or don't do effectively. You know, expecting your to-do list to help you get things done is grabbing a screwdriver to, to hammer in a nail. And and sure, you might flip the screwdriver around and try to uh, bash the nail in with the handle, but it's it's not the right tool for the job. Or it's like a vision board. This is where I want my life to be, and I'm just going to hope that it gets there. I would argue that to-do lists actually have a, a deleterious effect on people that rely on them because they bias you towards tackling the easy stuff, the quick tasks, which you get a quick win and you get a hit of dopamine every time you can check something off. I mean, that's why people go back and add things that they've done for the day already just to check them off, literally because their their brain wants that hit of dopamine. But that keeps you from making progress on the big goals that'll truly move you forward. And that makes you feel kind of like a failure at times. That's when people say, I'm oh, I'm so busy, I'm so overwhelmed, I never make headway on any of these things, I can't keep up. You know, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. So why can some people get a lot of stuff done while others sort of languish just staring at their to-do list that keeps growing and growing? And, you know, sometimes we stare at the to- to-do list or sometimes we avoid it altogether by scrolling social media or eating that, that pint of ice cream on the couch watching Netflix, you know? So... To-do lists are fine as long as they're part of a, a larger system. In fact, I'd argue they're the first step in the system, and that's capturing all the tasks that need to be done. But from there, they've outlived their use. You take you take everything from your to-do list, and you need to get it on your calendar. If you do that, you've now committed to getting it done, and you've allocated sort of your time and attention to that task, which is the only way that that task is really going to get done. So this is called, this goes by many names. One is called time boxing because you're literally putting boxes on your, you know, your Google calendar of scheduling your time to do something. Some people call it calendaring. Just I've heard a lot of different terminology for it, but you're assigning everything a time and a place. Um, this plays into that Parkinson's law. You're constraining your time available to get something done. So you'll, as long as you then commit to honoring your calendar, which that again takes some discipline, you'll figure out how to get whatever done in that time, in that time you've assigned it. A huge source of stress in my life is when I've got, well, I've got to do these CMEs. I've got to do, you know, this course or that course for the hospital. I've got to, and they start accumulating, but I haven't allocated time for them. And so it's there in my mind, bogging me down, source of stress. That stress comes out in other points in my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where my wife asks me, what's wrong? And it's usually because so many of those things have accumulated that it's really starting to weigh me down. Whereas if I had put them on a calendar with a specific time and place, and even if I said, you know what, I can't do bedtime tonight because tonight I have to dedicate to, you know, or X night, give her some advance so she knows I'm not going to be around. Now I'm more pleasant. Why? Because I've gotten it a, a time and a place for it and I have to get it done in the time that I've allocated for. I love it. I love it. Now I just have to execute on it. I have an accountability partner and it's for... Who's not your wife. Who's not my wife. Okay. It's another physician coach. And we just hop on a Zoom call and just to keep each other accountable. On the Zoom call, we're filling out our calendars and taking our to-do list, which, you know, I just use the notes app on my phone to capture what I need to do. And I just transfer it to, you know, I made a sort of just a planner-like page where I can track things and I do it on my iPad, which makes it super... um, easy to for me to track and then you know can put on google calendar as well if, if i need to but you know the important thing isn't actually necessarily finishing your task in that time that you allot it because that takes time to figure out how long things are going to take but 
What's actually really key is that you are honoring that commitment you made to work on that thing. Because like I said, those folks who operate just off of a to-do list, they may not think of it, but they're sort of generating the subconscious narrative that they are a failure, that, that why are, why am I always running behind? Why? Like that weighs on people. That is a heaviness. Whereas if you can tell yourself, Hey, I just said I was going to spend an hour working on X, Y, or Z. And I, I spent that whole time, even if I didn't finish it, like that's still a win. So you're almost like building up your credibility with yourself. So you start to then get that reward and that positive feedback, which is a more sustaining kind of reward than that quick hit of dopamine from just crossing something off your list. And that's what makes these things sustainable for the long term. It sounds like exercise and dieting the way that you're describing it, right? Like that cookie is that quick hit of dopamine, but the exercise is the more fulfilling and more sustaining, but you can't just exercise once and then it just happens from there. It needs to be a commitment and accountability partner helps. If you want to listen to one of my past episodes, you can go to the episodes with BJ Fogg where he talks about tiny habits, incorporate some of those ideas. So, so I, yeah, but I love that, that it applies. So it applies so exactly to my life, which I'm sure is happening with 99% of the listeners right now. Yeah. And you know, that common thread between diet, exercise, charting, all of these things, that, that common thread is, is our mindset. And how we approach these things. And this is why coaching is powerful. Because you, and this is why, uh, you know, at at the beginning when I said I was working, I was self-coaching on certain things and I had all these sort of ancillary benefits is because, right, if I fix this one thing with a fix, a a pattern of thought that wasn't serving me, there'll often be all these downstream benefits that didn't even relate to, you know, working on my burnout or working on scarcity and things like that. It's because I'm working on my mindset. And again, that has such diffuse and prolific benefits that it's it's not like a one-to-one so that the common thread through all of this is mindset and that's why again that's why coaching is, is so powerful are you still part of the fire movement i think i subscribe to that financial independence because that helps give you autonomy and you know if at some point the decisions at work are made that completely run counter to the other priorities i have in life if you've hit a certain number where you're comfortable saying you know what You've, I, I set a boundary. You have now crossed that boundary. I will now take the, the action that I said I was going to take. So yeah, you know, I used to be like, oh gosh, we have to stay at work until, you know, loans are paid off or we've qualified for public service loan forgiveness or this, that, and the other. And, you know, in, in the midst of, of COVID, we did, we were unsure if my wife was, if her job was still going to exist. Her clinic was really struggling. So unusually calm during all that. I'm like, that's fine. You know, we'll be fine. We'll figure stuff out. We'll be fine. Whereas, I think a year prior, I would have been like running around with my like hair on fire, what little hair I have on fire and, you know, contributing more to the stress in the family. But I think I was able to make it less of a stressful issue, even for my wife, just based on how I was reacting. So where can people find you? You have a charting course coming up and you also have a blog. So tell us, where can people find you? Where can people find the course and the blog? I run an online course uh, with group coaching called Charting Conquered. It'll second cohort is running currently. It'll next be available uh, early 2022. It is CME eligible, so that is a, a nice perk for folks who need help with charting. And you can use your, your organization's uh, CME to help uh, defray the costs. You know, in that program, I'll, I'll help you finish your work at work so you can reclaim your time, try to make medicine work around your life instead of the other way around. And if you want to get on the waitlist for that, uh, you can go to www.chartingconquered.com. Dot com 
and click on the join waitlist button. My main website uh, is Prosperous Life MD, and that's where I house my blog, my sort of my one-on-one coach, and you can just go to www.prosperouslifemd.com uh, and you can find a lot of posts that pertain to the material we've discussed today. Junaid Niazi, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on as a guest. It's been a lot of fun. What a great show with Junaid Niazi, Prosperous Life MD. But before we end, here's a quick reminder. If you want to boost efficiency across your practice and make staff scheduling easier, try the Deputy app. You can try this smart technology for free by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. That's drpodcastnetwork.com slash deputy. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Our celebration takes us a turn towards career diversification with Dr. Naomi Lawrence-Reed. She's a pediatrician and the founder of Doctoring Differently, a platform designed to help physicians explore alternative income streams beyond traditional clinical practice. From per diem work to medical expert witness roles, Dr. Lawrence Reed's journey is an inspiring testament to the possibilities that await those who dare to think differently. Dr. Naomi Lawrence Reed is a pediatrician and founder of Doctoring Differently, a course and coaching platform designed to teach physicians of all specialties how to transition out of full-time clinical and academic practice while starting lucrative and flexible careers that best utilize their medical training and experience. We discuss all of her different income streams like per diem, locum tenens, veteran and social security disability exams, medical witness work, aesthetics, how she got into each of them, how we can get started, and why it's okay for a pediatrician to inject Botox into adults. Dr. Lawrence Reed initially intended on a career as a pediatric emergency medicine specialist, but she was unwilling to yield to the confines of restrictive hospital contracts, non-negotiable salaries, exhaustive administrative duties, and oppressive call schedules. She developed the Doctoring Differently curriculum in order to give physicians the tools to choose themselves and transform their individual passions and expertise into gratifying careers with increased income, tremendous freedom, and enhanced quality of life. Dr. Lawrence Reed is a proud Boston-area native currently based in San Diego, California. She attended Wake Forest University, University of Massachusetts Medical School, and she completed pediatrics residency at Children's Hospital at Montefiore, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. You can find her at DoctoringDifferently.com. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Today's podcast is sponsored by Thermal Custom Packaging. TCP has many different products to help with medical transportation, including their totes and phase change materials, or PCMs. TCP developed a portable blood bank using these phase change materials to maintain the precise temperatures required to store and transport blood. This portable unit allows blood to remain with the patient in the critical hours following surgery, which is especially important with younger, smaller patients. 
Using TCP's insulated totes and their custom PCMs, they're able to transport blood specimens, biological pharmaceuticals, tissues, organs, vaccines, including the COVID vaccine, as well as allografts, refrigerated, frozen, and ultra-cold as needed. These products are even being used to ensure the safe travels of the COVID vaccines to rural areas. They also have other products such as MedShield and IceBuddy available for retail use, which you can learn more about on their website, which is thermalcustompackaging.com. Visit them with the link in the description for more information and follow them on Instagram at thermalcpackaging. Dr. Naomi Lawrence-Reed, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Longtime listener, first time caller. Big fan. Thanks for having love it, me. Love it. Thank you. Um, so let's start off with the differently doctoring origin story, or rather doctoring differently. Right. Uh, okay. Well, origin story. I am a pediatrician. I uh, did my, I went to medical school in Massachusetts. I did my residency in New York City. I actually really enjoyed residency. Uh, I was in a 10-story children's hospital. It was fun and exciting, big class, lots of good medicine. Uh, and I imagined pediatric emergency medicine to be my future soon after that. I began working in a PZR and applied to pediatric fellowship, pediatric emergency fellowship. Did not, uh, what, did not get it, was not accepted or did not match, uh, but continued to work in a PZR for almost three years and was really unhappy and miserable. Uh, and wait, 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 I'm sorry. You applied for, so by the way, fellow, non-fellow matching, I, uh, applied for a rhinology fellowship, okay. just doing noses didn't, didn't match. So okay. similar boat. Um, but you said you applied for, and this is just my lack sure. of understanding of peds. You sure. applied for a peds ER fellowship mm -hmm. and then didn't get it. But you still went and worked in a PZR anyway. I was already working. So PZRs are kind of split into higher acuity and lower acuity. Lower acuity maybe being closer to an urgent care type of uh, acuity. So yes, there are parts of, e of pediatric emergency departments that are staffed by general pediatricians, if that to answer your question. So the, to work in the higher acuity section were the fellowship trained pediatric emergency medicine people, of which at one point I aspired to become. Uh, okay. So maybe you could get experience doing that uh, lower acuity and then get hired in a higher acuity one. So kind of a way to bypass the fellowship. Oh, well, that, I don't know that you can fully bypass it these days, but it was kind of like my introduction to the department. I thought maybe a, um, uh, like yes. an audition almost. If exactly. That yeah. Sense. You start working there and they're like, you know what? Why don't you do a fellowship here? Yeah. Oh, great. You know, I never thought of that. I'd love to. Yeah. That part. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, so, so I, I, that is exactly what happened. I, I was working there and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, they hired me as a, as an attending to, uh, to, you know, be the attending on record and see tens to a lot of, a lot of children daily. They must uh, trust me enough to hire me as a fellow. Uh, and they did not, or bring me on as a fellow. So I did not uh, match in that fellowship. Uh, and this was now 2015. So I finished my residency in 2014. Um, but I continued to work in the PZR. I, at that time, did not really want to do outpatient. Uh, I, I didn't have a great next plan other than continuing to work in the PZR. Uh, however, PZR is uh, here. Um, it's, it's in an ER. 
That's, I don't have a cute joke. It's in an emergency department and that means it's open 24 hours a day and uh, you're working nights and weekends and holidays. And I was exhausted and being kind of the lower acuity part of the ER as a pediatrician, I'm looking in ears at three in the morning. And in my mind, I'm thinking this is not, this will not be my career. Um, and as I tried to do some sort of soul searching and kind of listening and looking around my community, I live in San Diego. Uh, I, you know, people just told me really your only options are another fellowship or working in an outpatient setting. And I just thought, you know, at the time, not married, no children, I thought, you know, I have a lot of flexibility in my life. I could do anything. I can go anywhere. I'm going to take my chances and do that. Um, so I, you know, the short answer, there's a whole lot in there, some great stories I could tell about kind of what got me to that place. Uh, but ultimately, I left in May of 2017 and started exploring just out of curiosity, first out of survival. I went per diem at another institution. I had to pay bills. No one was there to pay them but me. Um, so I, I had to have that bridge of just per diem income to pay loans and living expenses. But then that snowballed into discovering that any physician can do aesthetics, discovering that um, I could do locums, I could do veteran disability work, I could do medical expert witness work, I could do telemedicine. So now I'm almost five years from that point where I left the PZR, and I have now explored hmm, seven or eight different types of work for physicians, and it has been truly incredible. So I think that answered maybe your question, just trying to gloss over a lot of the little details about the origin story. It was initially out of survival. Um, it morphed into curiosity. And now it is truly just a fun, lucrative ride. So I, I just want to point out something to the listeners that we often mention on the podcast, which is hedonic adaptation, right? Like you get used to anything. So now I'm over 10 years out from my residency and things do get monotonous you know it's you know i'm seeing a lot of ear infections i'm seeing a lot of sinus infections i'm seeing a lot of, right and so yeah each patient tells a story and everyone's an individual fine but there is some monotony there and when you have seven or eight different income streams and you might be like you know what i don't necessarily i'm not in love with this one so you know we're going to do this one which might lead to another one which leads to another one and so you're constantly learning it's constantly something new um and so that then you don't have that hedonic adaptation and one thing that everyone always tells me with kids is oh it goes so fast right and and so the way that you the that's not advice that's just like thanks <laughs> No, not helpful. But uh, the way that you combat that is by slowing time down is by paying attention and being present. So how do you be present during, you know, something monotonous? You're not present during your commute to work, but when you're doing as many things as you're doing, you have to, you're paying attention and it slows down time in a good way. It, well, unless you really hate what you're doing and then you don't have to do it because you've got seven other income streams. Exactly that. Exactly that. I have come again. I, and I just want to tell your listeners and you, I certainly was not, I, this was in no way my future. If you had asked me in medical school, what my goal was, it was going to be a community pediatrician. I was going to bring cupcakes to clinic or to the hospital every Friday, not cause any problems, just do my job, you know, see, do my thing. Um, so this is, something I truly have uh, 
evolved into. And initially, I think out of survival, I keep using that word in that, you know, I feel, you know, people have told me, physicians have told me what I've done is quote unquote brave. Oh, you left your job. You're exploring so many things. That's so brave. And I tell them I've never felt brave a day in my life. I felt like my hand was on a hot stove and I pulled it off. That's what it felt like to me. It didn't feel like a, an, a courageous act of, of valor or, or bravery. It felt like I am unhappy. I don't see a path upward or forward here. As a pediatrician in a PDR, you're a stepchild. You know, this is a fellowship based, you know, world. And as a just a pediatrician, quote, unquote, unquote, uh, you don't have really much room to ascend in administrative roles or teaching roles or anything else. Um, and being an academics, maybe you've discussed that your your academics is essentially Latin for underpaid. So uh, <laughs> and then you put pediatrician in there. And uh, again, as your listeners may know, pediatricians underpaid, least paid of all specialties. Um, and so I, I just came to the realization that none of this was going to work for me. I didn't at the time I I maybe had some regrets about going into pediatrics, but thinking back, I can't imagine doing another specialty. It just was, I need to figure out how to do it differently. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of differently, you are mm -hmm. doctoring differently I and am. here at the physician's guide to doctoring. We <laughs> use doctor also as a verb. So yes. how did you end up deciding to use it as a verb? <laughs> well, uh, I'll, 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 I think bring them, maybe the mood somber it just a little bit. Um, my mother, uh, who passed away a few years ago, unfortunately, oh, she used sorry. to say to me, thanks. She used to say to me, you know, she was eternally proud, um, and got to see me graduate med school and residency. And she used to say, I wish I could watch you doctoring. I wish I could see you doctoring. Um, of course she never did. Cause I would have been weird, but that those were, that was a word, uh, to her. And then to me, because she said it to me so often. Uh, so, you know, a few years ago, and I guess I'll, I'll kind of get into more of the story of how this, my platform evolved, but after I'd spent a few months really kind of going back and forth about kind of what my voice would be, what my platform would be. Uh, I thought I needed a name. I needed a punchy name that said it all in, in the name, in the title. And uh, I was just sitting on my couch and it, it, it came to me. And, you know, it had been almost, oh, about two years since she passed at that point. We were deep in the pandemic. It was like, you know, bleak days out here. But when that kind of hit me, I thought that's, that's it. Doctoring differently. It's every, it, it says it all, you know, you're still a doctor. You're still performing and acting and serving as a physician. You're just doing it in a different way, not a better way, not a worse way necessarily. I'm partial. I think it is a far better way, but at the end of the day, it's a different way. It's an alternative uh, that most of us were not exposed to in at any part of our training. No, that's a really sweet story. I love that. I love that. Um, so, so what are these different, differently streams that you're getting? If we could just, sure. you know, go through the go different through. ones and, in, in list form, and then we'll sure. explore some of them. Sure. Uh, I'll kind of, I'll, I think of them in the order in which I explored them. So it started with per diem work, then locums, then aesthetics, Botox colors, then, uh, telemedicine then uh, uh, veteran disability work, medical expert witness work, social security work. I think that's it. I don't know. Six, seven, I think. I wasn't counting. Sorry. But yes. No problem. Sounds about right. Okay. Okay, fair. 
Um, Social Security work. That's a new one for me. Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. What Uh, is that? Sure. So there are, well, break it down. There are a number of federal programs that require physicians to kind of determine how money is allocated to patients. Uh, Social Security provides uh, benefits, uh, provides financing for children. Well, I'm a pediatrician. This is pediatric work. Uh, But let's say children who are, um, who have a disability or are in foster care. There are a number of federal programs that uh, these children are eligible to apply for, or maybe a child has a chronic illness, the family earns too much to necessarily apply for say Medicaid, they are uh, eligible to apply for other federal federally based services, if that makes sense, to um, to kind of supplement, you know, yes, we make a little bit too much, but no, we also cannot afford a half a million dollars a year in medical bills, that kind of thing. So there are some nuance here. There's some nuance in terms of these federal programs. Uh, and again, so, so my role uh, when I do the social security adjudication work uh, is I am a medical expert and I can be called upon for either a chart review where I get a, a, a plaintiff's or a claimant claimant's records ahead of time, um, and then come to a decision and say, you know what, based on this criteria, this child has severe ADHD or severe autism, and I, and based on my expert opinion, uh, this child should be eligible for additional services or compensation. Um, and so that is how social security works. That's kind of interesting. There's like a judge on the phone and with COVID, it's actually been really nice to be able to do it virtually because it's, oh, this is an important part for, for you and your listeners. This is federal work. So there's no specific medical license involved. Uh, so I, you, you don't need, I don't, I've adjudicated cases for New Jersey, Massachusetts. I live in California. I only have a California medical license. It doesn't matter. Um, when you're doing federal work, you can do it to any state uh, without having to go get that license. So that's And I know what the listeners are thinking, and let me know if you're not comfortable ask, answering. Sure. What's the pay for something like that? Oh, sure. So per case, uh, the rate I've negotiated, I'm a big, big, big fan of negotiation, by the way, I do not accept any first offers for almost any of the work I do. Um, I, I am paid, I think, $220 per case. Uh, and these cases last on the phone, roughly 30 minutes. Uh, but I'll do about 30 minutes of prep work reviewing the chart ahead of time. So yeah, okay. I, based on the rate, I'll tell you that I and I was clear with the agency I worked with, uh, that $220 uh, buys them basically an hour of my time. I, I'm yeah. very clear about that. Uh, yeah, so I sense. said, you know, if you if you're expecting a full day review and like combing through hundreds of charts, you're not going to get that at this rate. Uh, and they uh, understood it. And yep. we have proceeded. I've, I've, we've proceeded as such. How'd you get in touch with them? Uh, so that backs up to the veteran, uh, veteran disability work I do. Um, and so there are, when I talk, uh, right. I'll just kind of. That's interesting because the pediatrician, right? Like I know fa- we send children off to war, right? They're like 18, 19. They're kind that. of, yes. They're, yes. you know, but, but. Like when I think of the VA, I think of like the Vietnam and the World War II, Korean War vets that I took care of when I rotated through as a, as a resident. So like, how does a pediatrician fit in there? 
Great question. Uh, all right. Well, this is, brings me to eventually how I got it. It was a it was the VA then to the Social Security, but again federal. Um, I connected again in the pin when I started having the idea for doctoring differently. I'd only I was only up to like four different um, streams, and I reconnected with a friend here in San Diego, a family medicine physician. Found her on LinkedIn. And I was seeing all this veteran work. And last I knew, she was still a practicing family physician at a, at a local large hospital system. So I called her up and I said, you know, what's going on? What's all this veteran stuff? And it's, you know, is this something I could potentially teach my future students and clients about? I in no way was, as you just said, imagining a pediatrician could do VA work or veteran disability work. Um, she was so passionate about this kind of stream that she had found her own, own husband was a Marine veteran. And uh, at that point, she uh, illuminated or, or taught me uh, that, again, this is a federal, a federal um, uh, ruling um, by Congress that any physician of any specialty also PAs, nurse practitioners, advanced practice practitioners can also perform this veteran disability work. Um, and it does not matter the specialty at all. Uh, and now that I've done this work for over a year, uh, I can confirm that it is a lot of just third and fourth year medical school knowledge. These are not diagnostic exams. These are not clinical exams. I am not ordering tests. I'm not treating anything. I am basically a veteran will claim as they dissociate from the military or separate, uh, they will claim, you know, a number of ailments or illnesses. Um, they will come to their visit with me. I have their entire medical record in their hand. I get their, uh, their, you know, personal, uh, their, their history. Uh, I may do a brief physical exam. That's almost always just musculoskeletal. Um, maybe it's, a, if there's a scar, the VA likes us to measure scars. Um, but that is really the end of it. I'm not ordering again, not ordering tests, not treating, not diagnosing. Um, and I compile a report based on what's in the chart, what they've told me and the physical exam. Um, so it was initially, you know, it, I was about 10 years out of medical school. So 10 years since I'd treated an adult patient and it was initially a little like, oh, okay, okay. You know what? I can do this. I've done this before. I can do this again. And it's been lovely. It really has been wonderful. Uh, I've refreshed myself on the Korean War and the time frame and Agent Orange. And it's I'm kind of a little bit of a history buff. So I've enjoyed that part. And so again, these veterans are not sick. This is not a clinical visit. So a lot of them just like to talk and are happy to talk uh, to someone about their experiences in 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 not, not all of them have been in combat, but at least during their active duty service. So it's been wonderful. The, but to answer your original question, the company, the large, large contractor that facilitates these VA exams um, also has a contract to facilitate Social Security and other federal um, programs that require physician, uh, physician expertise. Who is that? <laughs> it's called Maximus. Maximus. So they, Maximus. this company has like a billion dollar contract. You need to, the, vet, the Department of Veteran Affairs has like something like a 48 annual billion dollar budget. 
just know that there's a lot of money in the VA and all of this work. So uh, yeah, yeah, they have these contracts to facilitate these exams, onboard physicians, create the infrastructure, create the EMR. And uh, yeah, and, and so they, not only do they have, you know, one arm is the veteran world, but these other arms are social security, are, um, uh, they, there's, a, there's a number, there's a number of different, of different things. So it's been, it's been a fun journey. So I was in with one, and I just slid over and got in with some others. So with the the VA, you're just recording an exam, a history and exam. You're not deciding anything. Whereas no. with Social Security, yes. you are actually making a decision on what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. No, just actually, no, it's it's very similar. I give my uh I give my expert opinion. Uh, and then a for Social Security, a judge actually decides uh, a, a judicial, I'm sorry, a uh, yes, a judicial, you know, a, a local judge or local kind of circuit judge makes the decision. He asks me questions, he or she asks me questions, I give my opinion, and then I don't actually know the decision they make. They make it after you know, I've gotten off the phone with them. Um, and same with the VA, I'll say, I'll make, you know, I'll put my report together, it goes to the VA, the VA makes a decision, I don't hear what the decision was. So, you know, I know that a lot of physicians think, you know, and, and I could say the same about medical expert witness work, if we get there, uh, you know, physicians, we have this, uh, I don't want to say godlike mentality, but we think that a lot of this work is, you know, all, uh, all the control and all the powers in our hands. And, you know, it's a lot of pressure. And with so much of this work, you're just giving your opinion. You're just giving your expert opinion. That's what people want from us. Uh, and they'll pay us a lot of money to do it. We'll get, again, medical expert witness work. We'll get to that. Um, they'll pay you a lot of money for your opinion. And then someone else makes the decision. So, there should be a little less pressure off of off of you for that. So which of all of your non-clinical, because yeah. we're going to get to the Botox and fillers, but of, of all of your non-clinical yeah. income streams, which one was the easiest to break into? Easiest, easiest to break into, huh? Um, that's that I wasn't expecting that question. That wasn't in your prompts ahead of time. It was, <laughs> it was the easiest to bring into. I will say for me, I kind of roll with the punches. So I'm often not even looking for new things. I just kind of trickle into them. So it's hard to say if it was easy or not. I mean, my first one I'll say was per diem work. And I know that's not like a sexy one, but really it was just another hospital system in town who needed per diem coverage. And I applied, I mean, Yes, I interviewed, but I was immediately accepted. Um, locums work, I can tell you, probably you and almost every physician in the country, we are getting emails and calls and texts about locums work. There's just no way. There's no way to get off those lists. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but <laughs> if you wanted to do it, you could very yeah. easily, right? So it's just like a matter of what you really want. Um, aesthetics, I'm kind of going down the list in terms, I, I'm giving you a, a kind of rundown on, on all of them. Aesthetics, I will say, requires an initial investment of, of money and time in terms of taking classes and doing some, doing training and then buying product. So I'll say, I mean, you could easily quote unquote break into it. You just have to sign up if that makes sense. It's not hard to quote unquote break into, um, but it does require an initial, you know, financial and time investment. Um, medical expert witness work, I listed myself on a directory and 
you know, over the course of maybe six months, I've been asked to join three cases. So again, they kind of came to me to ask, um, but I just listed myself on just one directory. So which, which one? Uh, Seek, S-E-A-K. I don't know if you get okay. those. And does that one cost money? So that one does. So it costs, it, it costs uh, $600 to list yourself. And that was the, I picked the lowest, most inexpensive kind of bracket for listing. Yeah. Um, you can, of course, the higher tiers and you'll be the first, you'll be the number one search and those cost more. Um, but the Seek one, yes, $600. However, if you don't get any work in one year, get your money back. Oh, but I've gotten three. Wow. Yeah, see, so it's almost like, why not? Well, if you don't take any work or if you don't get offered any work. That's a great question. I don't know. I was, gotcha. I, okay. I've, ta I've taken, I've taken, yeah. I've taken three. I've taken three. I've turned yeah. down a couple, um, but I have taken, I've joined three. So yeah. okay. I can't, I will never know. I'll never know, but it was well worth the $600 investment. So you, you said about the, or let me rephrase that. You live in San Diego. And you do Botox and fillers. So that to me, I would think like if yeah. you were in the middle of Wyoming, mm. right, with with no where you could keep the Botox outside because it's so <laughs> cold, right? Yeah. With no cosmetic practice for miles mm. around, I mm. could see that being an easy thing. But you're mm. a pediatrician in San Diego and somehow mm -hmm. are managing to do fillers. Like I live in I live in you know, New York City suburb. Okay. And so there are tons of cosmetic surgeons. There's the oh. battle between general plastics and facial plastics, and then oral surgeons and oculoplastic surgeons and all of these. Everyone's done a fellowship or two fellowships or three. Oh, right. Lord. So like how, okay, 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 what, okay. Let me <laughs> let me see. All right. I've got I've got plenty to say about this. So I'll tell you how I started. A friend of mine. Uh, her father is a, was a retired vascular surgeon in Iowa, uh, not even Des Moines, like some other, I've never been to Iowa, but some, some other part of Iowa. He was a vascular surgeon who, uh, after, you know, nearly 30 years of private practice, vascular surgery, you know, was approached by his front desk ladies, receptionists, who said, hey, would you you know, maybe consider, you know, doing, you know, physicians have to own these practices. So could you incorporate this somehow? Um, so, and he, he, his own words were, I'm a crusty white guy. Why would anyone come to me for any of that? Those were his words. Um, but he was a very good businessman. So he, you know, looked into it. He already had, being vascular, doing vein work, he already had lasers, a lot of med spas, you know, do laser work. Um, and he got a practice up and running in, a, in I think, six to eight months, um, kind of hired some estheticians and other people to come in, got some training himself and added it to his vascular practice. Uh, he turned That's around. Iowa. Huh? That's Iowa. That's Iowa. That's Iowa. That's okay, Iowa. I'm getting here. I'm getting there. So he then turns around, sells the practice to an interventional cardiologist. Apparently, the he he said the the margins on the aesthetics work work uh, the aesthetics arm of the practice were so big that is what sealed the deal. Not the like cabbage, you know, vascular actually saving lives part. It was the aesthetics part that that like got him got got the sale, got the got the deal. So he tells me, he's like, "Okay, he's he says, I killed in, you know, in 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 suburban rural Iowa." 
this is Southern California. This is San Diego. You know, he said, you know, at the time I was younger, but he said, you're young, you know, you're a physician. That is all people care about. And any physician can do it. He was telling me and a number of us young, you know, friends of his daughters who are all young physicians. And so we started thinking, you know, I was unhappy in my pediatric ER life at the time. And I just was like, huh, I never considered it. I grew up in Boston. We don't do that. You know, we're not, we're not, but yeah, we're not, we don't do that. That's not the culture I'll say. Um, and I just, I probably sat on it for like a year, kind of looked into things, was looking at other practices in San Diego, other med spas. And let me tell you, most of the med spas are owned by uh, let's see, family medicine, OB, uh, um, uh, emergency, emergent, former emergency physicians, anesthesiologists, a lot of medical spas are actually not owned by, or operated by the derm, the plastics, the all of that. And, and let me just say, so, so I started taking ENT, classes. Don't forget ENT, because we should be, you know, up in I, that. Yeah, I, and I will say one of the, so I started taking courses, uh, which you can sign up for, which you can get CME for. And by the way, when I took a lot of these classes that were part didactic, part hands-on, I was one of the few physicians in any of the classes. They're all nurses. So you may go to an oculoplastic, whomever, whomever, eight fellowships later, it's still probably going to be a nurse who's doing your Botox. Uh, so so just know that it's, it's, I was, I am almost always the minority the physician minority in any of these hands-on classes I've ever taken for this, um, because it is so much, so many nurses, nurse practitioners, um, PAs, that's who does the injecting period. That's who operates the lasers. So these practices have to be owned by, again, a physician of any specialty, but your actual injectors, they cannot, they have to be at least, at least a nurse. Sorry. I do say at least a nurse. They can't be estheticians or in others. Actually in California, they have to be nurses. I do believe it is state by state. So in some states, it does not have to be a medical professional. I think Arizona is one where it could be like, you know, an esthetician who, you know, does your eyebrows and then does your Botox. I don't think that's the safest, but you know, I, I get that question a lot. Pediatricians, let me tell you, as, as a very pro pediatrician person, uh, I, will, I will tell you that I think pediatricians are people's favorite doctors and the most trustworthy. You, if I'm outside of medicine, outside of the hierarchy of medicine where, you know, pediatricians are, you know, the cute little people with the kids in the corner, you know, you say it to a room of non-medical people, people like pediatricians. We are trustworthy. People generally have good memories of their own. They take their kids to them. It's, it, they trust us inherently. Uh, and so, when you're doing Botox, you can take out a picture of a couple of babies that's and it. be like, you want to look young? That's right. This that's was it. my last client. This was my last patient. I Here lean into baby. <laughs> this is how young you're going to look. <laughs> exactly. And I lean into it. I mean, I kind of say, you know, oh, I, I have a rep to protect. I use the tiniest needles. I do. I use 32 gauge. Um, and so I, I lean into it with almost everything I do. I never, you know, I see veterans and some, they have my name ahead of time. And sometimes they'll say, I Googled you. I see you're a pediatrician. And I look at them in the face and I say, yes, I am. <laughs> and I just, we stare down and then we keep going. Um, but yes, I am. Now let's check your prostate. That's right. That's right. Usually it's like the spouse who's Googled me. Never, yeah. never, rarely yeah. the vet himself. Uh, but, but, but all that to say for, 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 
Uh, aesthetics in Southern California, people just care that you're a doctor. And and by the way, by the way, my clientele has almost all, I don't have a brick and mortar. I pretty much do it. You know, when I started, when I started this almost, oh my gosh, four years ago, I started doing this. That was the thought that I was going to have a brick and mortar. I was going to have my own med spa and staff and yada, yada. And it was a, a pandemic, I think, decision for me that I was like, that I, I really reflected that this is not my passion. I do not want to be a, a med spa. I don't, I don't want that. And doctoring differently is where I truly love. And I feel like that is my truck? zone of genius. What was that? What about instead of a med spa brick and mortar? How about a food truck? Oh, you know, right? people like have a med said spa that to me. Food like truck. A, people have said that to me, like an ice cream truck that like, you know, like it has the music and it goes down the block <laughs> exactly. and all the moms come out. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're like, oh, she's here. <laughs> so I've heard that. I certainly have. And it is not a terrible idea. There are mobile tanning beds and mobile IV hydration, as you know. So oh, there's a lot yeah. of all that. Um, so, you know, I'm sure someone's doing it. I don't know that that will be my future either, but uh, it has been just- Panini I Press, Botox. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've enjoyed the way I do it. Parties, one-on-one, -on -one, um, and I can, you know, how to start it. I know how to do it if I wanted to. I actually have some nurses who are, I'm medical directors for their own practices uh, in Southern California. But for me personally, I don't really want a brick and mortar. Now that I've discovered, you know, now that I'm really in, in my doctoring differently mode, I want to, to tell doctors and advocate for physicians and teach how to start all of the things that I do. So I think that- Well, it seems like with the brick and mortar, there's going to be a lot of overhead. Sure. And then exactly. exactly. And then you're tied to it, right? Then you've got an anchor That's as opposed exactly to everything right. that you're doing right now, right. you have nothing but freedom. Nothing but freedom. And let me tell you, it is- <laughs> the best thing ever. I cannot even tell you. I mean, I'm grateful every day that I discovered this way to work, you know, trusted myself. I'll say, I, I won't give you brave, but I will give, I trusted myself. And it has been truly incredible. Um, but it was watching my friends and colleagues and classmates, you know, in uh, two years ago, you know, deep in 2020, just struggle and not know about any options and think clinical medicine was all they could ever do. It was that, that really just, I was like, I have to, I have to create something to teach you know, to disseminate this information um, as effectively as possible. It's hard to tell though, from the way you're talking about it, you don't seem passionate about this material at all. It's not just like <laughs> bursting out of your pores. Amazing, amazing. Okay, so, so if you have some parting words for our audience about um, anything that you wanted to talk about today, mm. but didn't get a chance to touch on, any of Let's your see. income streams that you wanted to elaborate on a little, maybe get, didn't get the chance. I think we covered, I think we covered a lot, but we did, we, did. we, co we covered it. I think, you know, and that's why I offer, you know, what I do, I kind of teach it as, as I don't kind of, I do teach it as a six week course. And I start the beginning because yes, it's so people will try to ask me, you know, questions, snippets, and sometimes it pans out for them. And sometimes it doesn't about, you know, maybe pursuing a different Avenue stream. Um, I, First of all, love what you're doing. Please teach the medical students, teach the residents. Like this is my this is my uh, mantra too. But for the most part, I tell them come back at the end of residency. I don't have much for med students, but everyone, of course, is 
relatively unhappy and looking for some light uh, and some freedom and some some uh, money generating some some lucrative income streams. Um, but what I will say is, you know, my my main mantra that I say throughout my course is, you know, first of all, there are no rules to doctoring in medical school in residency. We're taught one way to be a doctor. That's full time clinical almost always. You know, we're not taught about the alternative ways to practice, especially the ways that can be lucrative, that can um, allow us to have flexibility of schedule, flexibility to be with our family. We're not taught those. Um, and so, you know, I think physicians have, you know, our personalities, right? We don't like risk. We didn't sign up to be entrepreneurs. We kind of wanted a very straight path with not a whole lot of variation in it. And, and so by the time we get out of training in our thirties, you know, we're not, you know, the kids come the house, the mortgage, the bills, the real adulting life comes and we don't feel like this is our time or that we've ever been given permission to explore potentially creative avenues to make money, to do things that interest us, even with outside of medicine. So I, my my main my main mantra is number one there are no rules to doctoring and two you have permission you know I like to say if no one's ever giving you permission I give you permission I like I like to say doctors don't need permission but we do we need someone to say hey it's okay you know you're you're not you're no less of a doctor if you don't have a full time clinical contract no one can ever take your education your experience your expertise away no one ever can um, and so the thought that once you leave academics or once you leave full time clinical medicine you can never ever ever go back um, is a lie. Um, so that's how it, <laughs> that's, yeah, how it. I feel like we all graduate with this, like relationship with our department chairman that they're like your parent and they're judging, you, you know, they're, they're looking at your career and they're judging you. And if you're not in academia and doing research and contributing in those ways, those traditional ways, then they're like, you're a disappointment and I never should have let you in this program, but there are other ways to, there are other ways to doctor. I love it. I love it. So many ways, so many ways. Yeah. And, and, and quite frankly, I thank you for what you're doing. I, I have visions of, of, of creating hopefully like a money in business, teaching residents, teaching, um, um, uh, medical students about how money is made in medicine. Of course, I feel like that is very intentionally not taught to us. Uh, but physicians, this whole system rests on our, on our, um, labor and we are, we don't see profit margins often in many specialties. And, uh, I think that that, you know, there are just so many, there are just so many parts of this that, uh, I would, I could expand on all day, but at the end of the day, I like to, I say, I give, physicians permission to explore anything at all that interests them and no decision is final. And you said you use the word leverage. And I, I love that because as you're exploring these other income streams, you're less reliant on the large hospital system, uh, academic center employment, Absolutely. which means if they want you, Absolutely. well, now you have leverage. Right. And if enough of us, of us have these alternate income streams, well, now we hold the cards and they no longer hold the cards. And if they want us, then they're going to need to pay for it. Right. Okay. They're going to need to in treating us well, fixing the EMR so it's not so awful. So our lives are easier and we can doctor better and maybe the malpractice system. And my hopes are really high about all this. And maybe the aspirations are too big. But this is where we start. You just said everything I say on a near daily basis. That's it. That is exactly it. When enough of us, a, a, a critical mass, a critical volume of us 
do the exactly that. Know our options outside of full-time clinical medicine. I do believe that we as a body of physicians across specialties have the leverage. That's it. So people say, you know, no, not, no, Dr. Lawrence Reed, not every doctor can go do Botox. No, that's not what I want. I want doctors to know they can if they want to, but ultimately I want doctors who want to be full-time clinical pediatricians, cardiologists, OBGYNs. I want them to be able to be, to work full-time if they want to, but to be protected, to to have efficient EMR, to have, you know, full six months maternity leave, to have all of the things that, you know, I think that quite frankly, I think short of an actual physician's union, which I'm a huge proponent of, and I don't think my visions are too big. I think we can make it happen in our lifetimes. Um, I think that that will be it. And, and we will, you know, I'll say, I'll say we will regain the leverage. It was lost in the nineties in and around there, but I do think that we're smart enough. I remind doctors how smart they are all the time. And, and by the way, you mentioned um, being uh, less reliant or not reliant on any major hospital system. I am not um, because I've also figured out how to get my own health insurance and how, what to do about my retirement and how to get my own malpractice. All things we can do, but we were never taught to do. Um, and I remind physicians, again, entrepreneurs across the country do it every day. Some with just high school diplomas, you know, how smart are you? I remind, I'm like, I say, remember when you graduated and you had all the regalia because you were a summa cum laude magna, you know, I, right? Remember that? You're capable of learning new things. That is our greatest asset as physicians is that we can learn new things. Uh, and that's where I come in. I teach many of them. So where do we begin? Where do we begin? Doctoring differently dot com. That's it. Dr. Naomi Lawrence Reed. That's yeah. where you begin. <laughs> That's it. Fantastic. This was wonderful. And uh, you kind of referenced this. I'm going to be teaching my medical students some of this material when I come to lecture them in three days. We're going to be including a lot of that. But for the, for the audience out there, doctoringdifferently.com, and you can, you're offering a course, right? As you said, yes. there's a six-week course. Yes. And follow her on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find all those links in doctoringdifferently.com. That's right. And uh, weekly webinars are going to start uh, at some point in the next month or two. So hopefully in June, I'm, I'm going to start doing weekly webinars and really just trying to disseminate the message that thank you, Dr. Block, you also echoed uh, throughout our whole conversation. Thanks for spreading the good word. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. As our anniversary special draws to a close, yep, already, we shift our focus to an often overlooked aspect of a physician's life, their role as a spouse. Join us as we re revisit our heartwarming conversation with Elizabeth Landry, a physician family advocate and certified life coach for physician wives. Discover the traits that make a physician a great partner and gain insights into the sacrifices that our significant others make along this rewarding journey. Elizabeth Landry is a physician family advocate, certified life coach for physician wives, emergency medicine wife of 20 plus years, mother and founder of The Med Commons, a digital magazine and online community serving physicians, spouses, and partners as they navigate med school, residency, and beyond.
Most of her content is for physicians, significant others, but she had a post recently about the six traits doctors need to be a great spouse. So we decided to make this an episode. We discussed that. In addition, we also discussed the sacrifices that our significant others make for us in our careers. Turns out it's not all sunshine and roses being married to a physician. There's some really insightful stuff that we cover here, and I think this is a really important episode. Elizabeth Landry founded the MedCommons to address a significant gap in the area of support for physician families and developed this platform to connect med spouses and partners with each other and resources to build a community of friendship, support, and understanding. Elizabeth partners with various individuals and organizations to drive forward the focus on mental well-being of physicians and their families. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Elizabeth Landry, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Brad. It's great to be here. So tell us, what is the MedCommons origin story? How did you start the blog? Uh, well, you know, um, the MedCommons has uh, really become a culmination of a few life experiences that I've had. Um, I was working, originally when I met my husband, I was working at a Fortune 50 company here in St. Louis, and um, who at the time was in his emergency re- residency, um, in his emergency medicine residency. And um, it was pretty clear from the beginning that if and when we got married, that um, I would need to stay at home with the kids since he would be doing shift work and they'd need some someone with stable hours and some consistency at home. So I understood what I was getting into. Um, I had already had about eight nieces and nephews at the time and family was everything to me. So once we began having kids, I stayed at home. So that was kind of the beginning of my story. Um, fast forward about 17 years and four kids later, (laughs) um, my oldest daughter was thinking about college and my youngest one was becoming a little bit more independent. And so I knew it was about time that I started thinking about, um, working again. And as much as I love my previous job, I knew that I didn't want to go back to nine to five. I still wanted to be there for my kids and their activities. So I couldn't go back and work in an office. So um, I'm a natural problem solver. <laughs> so I became, uh, I began trying to find ways to figure out what I wanted to do next, because I knew that if I didn't make a plan, then it wouldn't happen. And then I'd be stuck and all the kids would be gone and um, I would still be where I was. And I, I didn't want that for myself. So what I didn't realize during that 17 years is I started to kind of figure out what I wanted to do is that um, I kind of started playing the support role and less of the main character in my own story. And which I didn't realize until later after I'd been working with physician spouses and things that apparently that's a thing that happens um, with physician spouses just because of their husband's or spouse's job and I'll say spouses, but I mean spouses, partners, um, people in. Oh, I misunderstood. I thought you meant with reference to your kids, because that that's that's a revelation that I had once I started having kids. Is like, man, I'm not the protagonist in the story anymore. I'm like the protagonist's dad. Like, right. I'm not. I'm not Superman. I'm 
Pa Kent. Like, uh, I'm, yeah, so <laughs> right, I, exactly. I, I, mis, I misunderstood what you're saying. So no. probably so the same thing with the kids. Though. And then, and then with, with the, um, with the, with the significant spouse. So can you flesh that out a little bit? Like, what do you, what do you mean by not the main character? Yeah. So, I mean, your perspective is a great perspective because add on your Superman type character and then add on someone else, add someone else to the story that's also supporting you and your role as a physician, plus the um, kids and their roles and whatever they need to do. And that's sort of how you like fall into the support role is that, um, you know, my life in medicine, my husband's hours were so demanding. He was doing shift work. Um, I don't want to say that it's like being a single mom, but really I couldn't rely on him for any, um, any help with transporting kids. You know, if I signed somebody up for something, then I was bearing all of the responsibility because it, I couldn't rely on him because if he had shift work to do, or if it's not something he didn't have any regular hours that I could rely on him. So, so that's interesting. Your take and how you perceive that is that it's, um, it is. It's a lot of um, support role for the physician to enable physicians to do what they can and how and well, and then also the support role for the kids. So, so that's that's a pretty interesting take. So then, how does that tie into Med Commons, right? So that's I, I think what you're leading into is that like, is that support role. Are you going to dovetail that into like, then I was going to also be supportive of other physician spouses and, you know, or were you saying like in realizing that I, you know, decided I had all this knowledge and was going to pour that into the med comments? Yeah. So I think a lot of both, you know, this was a whole process. So, you know, thanks to HDTV, I went through all this process, like maybe I'd rehab houses or (laughs) I love wine and I began studying wine and I was going to become a wine guru and took some certifications. And while I loved it, um, what really led me to the path of the Med Commons is um, I found something called Ikigai. Have you ever heard of it? No. Yeah. So um, if if you've never heard of it, Iki in Japanese means life and guy um, describes your va- value or worth. So your Iki guy is your life's purpose or your bliss, what you wake up in the morning for, what inspires you to get out of bed, things like that. And there's like a whole method that you follow to find your Iki guy. But um, essentially where all the parts intersect of these different aspects of Iki guy is where you find your life purpose. So like who doesn't want to find their life's purpose, right? <laughs> so that's the okay, problem. You don't want to tell me. that to a bunch of physicians right, or you're right. going to end up with a mass exodus and the healthcare system is yeah. going to collapse. Okay. Yeah, Just, yeah. Guys, don't find your icky guy. Don't, don't right, keep, right. keep seeing patients. Yeah, probably. I think that that would be, uh, I think that would be a tough road to travel right now after all the medical training and everything. So so yeah, so um, my icky guy really ended up leading me to a path of service. So what I love and what I'm really great at doing is encouraging others, um, supporting others, watching them succeed, find their joy, and really being a cheerleader. Um, and like I said before, I'm a natural problem solver. So if I could other, help other people solve their problems and at the same time then be their cheerleader, then I kind of knew that that was my jam. So, um, 
that's when I became a certified coach and got into coaching physician spouses because then I helped them kind of get out of the chaos. People like me who had fallen into the support role and kind of find their thing, you know, just like I did. So that was perfect for me. Um, I could stay at home with the kids still and I could help people at the same time. And that was really a win-win for me. But um, during the process, you know, I um, heard from a ton of resident spouses and partners that really needed help and they couldn't afford coaching. So um, the general themes were, I'm just so lonely. I feel like my spouse is at work all the time. I'm scared to move to a new community. Um, I'm in a new community and no one really understands what it's like. And I'm kind of tired of hearing that it must be nice to be married to a doctor because this kind of really sucks. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't realize that all of this went on because um, I met my husband in residency and then we stayed in my hometown. So I didn't have to move across the country. Um, I didn't have to leave my job, my community, my friends, my family, and then move somewhere with somebody who's going to be gone 80 hours a week or more, you know? So, and to be honest, you know, I'm not really sure that I would have at the time. I was pretty close to my family and I still am, but not really sure that I would have. So, so yeah, so I say all the time that, um, and I'll probably say it a hundred times more that spouses and partners of residents are some of the strongest people that I've ever met. So I guess I knew at the time um, it was time to do something for this group of people that are so strong, like not helpless at all. Um, and much like me, like natural problem solvers, and they're searching for help and guidance in the community and they just can't find it. So um, it kind of began by combining my own experiences as a physician spouse and my background with tech and me experiencing coaching and learning from other physicians spouses and then my desire to help more people in a time of their lives when they really, really did need help. So that's how it started. That's how it all started. Um, I can skip over the development parts and tell you like what's happened since we started, but but that's kind of our origin story. Well, you you started talking about one of the questions that were meant for later in the episode, but let's, let's get right into it. So some, like, like you said, Oh, it must be great to be married to a doctor. All the, you know, people you get right. the eventual income and some social status, right. That people see. And, but, right. but like, you feel like you might be living in the shadow of the, of the spouse. All right. You, and, or you're like a supportive character or uh, what do they say in video games? And yeah, a non-playable character, non, right? Non-playable character, right? So, so what are what are some of the other negatives that right? Because this is a physician audience, so we have uh, you right. know almost all of them are 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 physicians. Some of them are right. my neighbors that that are kind enough to listen. I'm not sure why because it doesn't relate <laughs> to what they do. So, thank you for listening. But um, you know, for most of them, um, they are physicians, so they mm -hmm. might not hear this perspective. And I think it's good for us to hear it, right? So, what are some right. of the negatives of being a physician spouse. Now we're saying it's a non-physician physician spouse, right? Because right, physician couples right. are completely totally different. different. And, yeah. and we, we've actually covered that in, um, in, an, in an earlier episode, but mm -hmm. for the physician, non-physician couple, what are some of the other negatives? Yeah. So, you know, we touched on it a little bit before. I think um, one of the first is the stereotype from your friends, families, neighbors, um, 
that being married to a doctor is the holy grail. You know, um, doctor spouses do a really good job of keeping any complaints or unhappiness inside because of the misperception. You know, they don't want to seem ungrateful for their circumstances. You know, they they are comfortable. They live in a nice house. They're, you know, there's on the outside, it doesn't seem there's there's anything to be ungrateful for. So no one wants to put that out into the world. Um, but when, and when you've been dismissed enough times, I think, um, because of these comments, like at least you're married to a doctor, then you kind of learn to keep quiet. So that part is kind of tough, um, because you really have to find, um, another physician spouse or somebody who has a physician in their family, um, that understands what you're going through. If you have anything that you need to talk about. So that's one thing. Um, the other is I'd say that um, we're in relationships where the patient comes first and we will always come second. So um, if you've ever been a patient in need <laughs> of a doctor, then you can appreciate that. Um, but it's a tough pill to swallow sometimes, especially when you miss your spouse or you, you know, you have to move for training and you have no family or friends around you. Um, they're gone for 80 plus hours a week and you just really won't need to be them, need them to be there. So that's tough sometimes. Um, and then I'd say finally, um, I think it's really all the sacrifices individually that don't seem like a big deal. Like if you take them individually, they don't seem like a big deal, like doing things alone all the time or being responsible for the majority of the household, you know, happenings or, moving into a new city and not knowing anyone. Um, but add all those little things together, you know, along with not being able to talk about it and um, have any like understanding of it. And then um, always coming in second instead of first, um, which, which is a good thing for patients, but um, it can it sounds become like pretty. It's, it's the incongruity also of the sacrifice. It's like, in a, yeah. it's like, like the, the, the physician is doing all these things for their career, for their patients. Um, and then the spouse has to make all these sacrifices for the physician spouse, but does the physician spouse is maybe making sacrifice for the career and the patients, but not for the spouse. Like, right. what have you done? What sacrifices have you made for me? You've made right. all these things, you know, you worked hard, you work late at night, you miss out on sleep, you miss out on kids' activities, you miss out on date night for your career and for your patients. But what did you miss out on so that I could do? Right. And I mean, I'm not going to lie, we signed up for it, right? I mean, I knew what I was getting into when we, no, so I say I knew what I was getting into, less. but I don't, yeah, I don't say that I knew exactly what I was getting into, but yeah you know, it doesn't make it suck any less. So, um, so yeah, it is an incongruity and it's not that, you know, like I said, we're a, we're a pretty brave and strong bunch. So it's not like the woe is me with any of us. Um, we love supporting our spouses and it's part of, you know, I think maybe physicians naturally gravitate to someone who can support them like this. And, but it, um, it does after a while. Um, I think all of those things add together become pretty tiring and um, resentment can kind of set in pretty quickly. 
Yeah, I've heard that 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 R word that can be the relationship killer, yeah. the resentment. It, it yeah, sneaks it in really there can. and it and it poisons everything. It really does. Um, so then, what would you say to the physicians who work hard all day, right, all shift, overnight shift, daytime shift, whatever, long shift, intense shift, something, mm -hmm. and they get home? And there's still work to be done at home, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they crash. Yeah. And they crash. Not, yeah. and, but not when it's like a one-off phenomenon, right? Like some, right. some days are just super hard and like, I get it. But let's say it's like a regular right. phenomenon. Regular and it, and yeah. it might be someone who has like a pretty intense, like emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. Pretty intense. Every shift. I mean, you might have a quiet overnight every so often. But by right. and large, it's uh, it's it's intense every time. Or or you're doing an outpatient where just like you just you know tons of patients over and over, or mm -hmm. a big surgery day with a complicated mm -hmm. surgery, and maybe mm -hmm. you know the outcomes are are tenuous because you're dealing with a, a patient population that is pretty sick to begin with. Um, right. So so you know they and either emotionally draining whatever, but it's on mm -hmm. the regular. Mm -hmm. And then they crash, yeah. and they're of no help to the spouse. So what would yeah. you say to that physician? Yeah. So, I mean, first I want to say we get it, you know, what doctors do all day or all night, you know, depending on shift work or, I mean, it's mentally exhausting. You know, I think, I think this is where communication and compromise comes in though. You know, um, they need to let us know how they feel, but we need to also really be okay with letting them know how we feel about it. Then you can come to an agreement, you know, like for example, um, you know, I like to plan. I'm a big planner. Planning's my planning's my jam. So um I know that my husband, when he comes home from a long day, he doesn't have the capacity to hear my plans right away. Like that's just too much for him. That's overwhelming. He needs to crash, he needs to relax. Um, I need to get it off my chest. So I say something to him, like, can we talk in the morning or can we table this? Or I have some plans, can we do this? But once there's an understanding, I think that if there's not an understanding about how you're going to handle it, maybe you relax for 20 minutes or you relax for an hour and I'll make dinner, but you do the dishes or, you know, maybe we take turns helping the kids get a bath or maybe we do this where it's where, it, you know, the spouse has been home all day or the spouse has also been at work. So the spouse is tired too. Um, but if you don't have communication and compromise, then resentment builds because if they crash too hard, they crash too often, then their spouse will feel like they're being taken advantage of. And that's just not fair. And I'm, I'm going to throw in maybe something needs to change professionally so Absolutely. that it's not happening all the time. Absolutely. Right? Because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work. It's not happening in a vacuum. Yeah. You know, that's a great point. You know, I've talked to physician spouses who, um, you know, their, their spouse wasn't getting home from work because they were charting so late. So the deal was they would chart at home after eight at night from eight to nine or however long it took them to chart. They would chart that long, um, later after they've been with the family, there's been family time, the kids are in bed and then they do that. So there's compromises to be made at that there too. But yeah, I mean, I agree. There's something happening at work and it's, and it's affecting your personal home life like that, then, you know, that's not good for anyone. And if you are staying at late, 
Late at Work Charting. You got to check out two of my past episodes where we've talked about charting, how to do it more efficiently. So go check it out. Yeah. Both of the people on those episodes are charting coaches. So if you need extra help, cool. check. Okay. Sorry. Enough plugging. Yeah. And, and I will say, I'll plug your podcast too. Then I'll say, you know, the spouses listen to those and, and send them off to your off to your spouse and let them hear it. So yes. Yes. And actually yeah. to all of your followers, make yeah. sure your spouse listens to my podcast. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Okay. So, so you recently had a post and that's mm-hmm. what, uh, got us to work together on this yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the six traits doctors need to be a great spouse. Cause most mm-hmm. of your posts are for, are for the spouse, right? Yeah. They're yeah. more oriented for the spouse. They're not oriented mm-hmm. to the physician, but this one, mm-hmm. um, you know, spoke to me cause it was, cause I was the audience. Um, so, yeah. so what are those six traits doctors need to be to be a great spouse. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. We do talk a lot about um, how, because we're a whole community of physicians, spouses, and partners. We talk a lot about what we can do, but you know, it's not all on us, right? Because um, I think another way to fall in the support role that is if we think that it's our own responsibility to make things run smoothly and we're the only ones that can do it and are responsible for it, then resentment builds and we fall in the support role and that's not good for anybody. So, um, well, what I like to start off um, by talking about when we talk about the traits doctors need to be a great spouse is really two traits together, which is appreciation and gratitude, because it really sets the foundation for a health, healthy relationship. And, you know, who doesn't like to feel um, appreciated and supported and grateful for? So, um what that really means, though, is that, you know, there aren't large sacrifices that are completely obvious, like the sacrifices that physicians make in order to become physicians. You know, we've talked about the little sacrifices that we make. Um, but um, just showing and talking to um, your physician spouse about these small sacrifices and how much you appreciate them and, um, you know, I know that the fact that I stayed at home with the kids has enabled my husband to do other things at home, like hobbies. He's a woodworker. So um, like hobbies in order to unwind and keep his mind off of what was going on at work. So I bear the brunt of the responsibility for the kids because I know it's good for his wellness and it might help prevent any worsening feelings about burnout um, for him. So I think him showing, showing me appreciation for doing that and acknowledging that I do that um, even just by, you know, resetting by when he walks in the door, just so he's in a good mood because he knows I've had a bad day. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing him when he gets home from work. Um, and the kids are looking forward to seeing him. So make it a happy entry when you're, go- when you're coming home. Um, go ahead. Whittle something for me. If you're going to be <laughs> right, in woodworking, right. whittle right. something for me. Whittle something. Right. Exactly. He, that is his love language. He's got, he's got quite a few, I have a, quite a few pieces of, uh, of furniture in my house because oh, wow. he does, yeah, he does love doing that. Um, so yeah, just be aware of their emotions, let them know how much you appreciate them. And if they're feeling tired or overwhelmed by responsibilities, don't assume that, um, they know how much you care, you know, tell them, show them how much you care because everybody likes to hear that they're appreciated. So verbally, we need to verbally. And then I would also add in the middle of the day. 
send an email in the yes. middle of the day. Send a text in between yes. patients. You're sitting on the toilet and you have your phone in your hand, send a text, send an email. Like there are windows there. I know our shifts are really busy and we're seeing patients back to back. And this patient was late and this patient was added on. This patient needs a call back. This patient needs a refill. But there are these quiet moments every so often during the day and take those, you know, intermittently to send yes. send a, a little love. It goes it goes a long way. And oh my gosh, you are so right. And some flowers. Furniture. <laughs> yeah, those, those are all fabulous things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I love that idea. That's so great. Um, so oh. yeah, so go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say, what, uh, what, are, yeah. what are some other traits? So, you know, we talked about communication when we talked about, you know, coming home and crashing and things like that. So communication is huge. You know, um, doctor spouses and partners, they we do a lot of waiting. Um, we do a lot of working around schedules. Um, you may see a lot of frustration for us if there is lack of communication. So just be understanding. Um, are you going to be late for dinner? Shoot them a text. Are you stuck with the patient? Shoot them a text. Um, and I guess that doesn't really only matter when it comes to schedules. You know, we worry a lot about our spouse's mental well-being. Um, you know, with physician suicides rates twice that of the general population. Um, you know, we worry about about them. So we worry about how poor patient outcomes affect our spouses. We worry about long hours. We worry about hard cases. We worry about burnout. We worry about bureaucracy. Um, we worry about how all of this affects our loved ones. So it all adds up and, you know, we see the results at home. I could talk forever about, about that and how... <laughs> how we support, we support our spouses at home. But if we see them feeling this way and we ask about it, then, um, then they hold it in and the doctors, physicians hold it in. Then it only makes us worry more. Um, okay. So, so you want us to, op you want us to open up, yeah. right? You do want yeah. us to tell you. Yeah. Okay. We do. Cause I, you know, it's, it's, am I, am I just like vomiting my burdens on you and no. now, you know, weighing you down because sometimes it does feel that way. Like I'm just now, now you've got something on your mind that I, I could have kept to myself and not, you know, yeah. Wage you, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, we carry, we carry that stress too, but it's a different, like we'll, we do worry about you. So it's better to communicate because we can see it happening. We can see it when you're sad. We can see it when you're stressed. We can see it when you're tired. So it's better to communicate that than leave us guessing, you know, um, because we're worried. It's, it's just, it's, it's scary sometimes when you see statistics and, um, you just don't th want that to be your spouse or your partner. Yeah. 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 So, um, and I guess that, that kind of comes, goes both ways with communication, but, you know, really when you come home, then, listen to understand. So, so after a long day of listening to patients wants and needs, you know, we, we get it, we understand that it may be difficult to sit and hear one more person, uh, tell you how they feel. <laughs> um, but, but listen, me, as, I mean, from a physician perspective, as long as you're able to communicate it concisely, because mm -hmm. a lot of the oh, frustration, that's a great perspective, a lot of the frustration that comes with communicating with patients is that like, they're often very circuitous about their experience 
mm-hmm. and nebulous about their symptoms. I mean, some of them come in and it's like straight as an arrow and it's like, awesome. I know exactly what you have. I can help you. And some of them, it's like, I, I don't know where this is like. So the hard part is like pulling the information out of them to try and get it in some type of, a, you know. And so if you can come at us with like something a little like straightforward, concrete, and how can I help you? And let's do this. And like, that's great. That's, yeah, we can fix this problem. This I can fix this problem. Especially yeah. if we had a day of a bunch of people that like, I may not have helped them. Or at least I didn't feel right. like often we help right. them more than we realize, but I didn't feel like yeah. I helped them. So if I can help you. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's a great perspective because, you know, sometimes we want to talk too. You know, we haven't been talking right. as an adult all day. And <laughs> right. sometimes we just okay. want to talk. Okay. So it's not all problem solving. So, it's not. Yeah, okay. It's, okay. Oh, absolutely not. I sometimes By forget that. Do not sometimes try to forget solve this. the problem. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes we just need to vent. So I think there's probably like some compromise in there. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm also, just going to Also make that vent. clear. Then make yeah. that clear. Make okay, that clear. Like, great. okay, I don't want you to solve my problem. I just, I just need to vent. Just yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Now I know my job here. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. That's great perspective. Yeah, because I mean, actually, you know, a lot of times physicians, spouses and partners feel bad, like even bringing up how they feel because everything just seems menial. When you talk to somebody that's been dealing with life or death all day or like been, you know, healing someone all day and you're like, I okay, treat earwax really and nosebleeds. So, you know, <laughs> I'm really treating, you know, Dr. Uh, Pimple Popper. <laughs> well, if they do actually tell you how they feel, then they've already run it through the test of whether or not they should, you know, and they've already run it through the test in their mind of whether or not they should bring it up to you. So it's important enough that they need you to hear them out. So put your phone down, listen to yeah. understand, ask the probing questions for you to better understand, but don't try to solve the problems. Like I said, sometimes just need to vent. Unless that problem is, okay, I can pick them up at soccer tomorrow. And then. <laughs> right. Do it. Right. Do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And just get it done. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Are any other traits that, uh, that doctors need to be a great spouse that we haven't covered yet? Uh, yeah. So, um, there's a couple, um, so this next one is pretty big because if it doesn't happen, um, then this is one way spouses, um, physician spouses and partners can get stuck in the playing the support role. Um, and that's really encouragement. So we get busy taking care of everyone else that um, we forget to take care of ourselves. So encourage them to go out and do something fabulous. Take responsibility for household chores, the kids, um, whatever, and tell them to go out with friends, encourage them to go learn something they've always wanted to, pursue a passion. Um, This will really breathe more life into your relationship um, because you're helping them fuel their happiness and also their confidence. So, and to be clear, it's what they want to do, not what you want them to do. (laughs) Exactly. Not another opportunity to be a controlling spouse. This is like (laughs) figure out what they want to do, not what you want them to want to do. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, I'd say last but not least is, um, show some compassion. So spouses and partners of physicians may have to move away from friends. I didn't have to, but they may have to move away from friends, family, community, um, even careers that they really enjoyed for training or even when physicians are done with training. Um, Sometimes shift work in the ER can be exhausting for the ones that stay at home um, and becomes kind of the default parent, as as I would say. Um, 
so there are plenty of things that aren't being fat that aren't fabulous about being married to a um to a physician so just show some compassion you can tell them you love them you can tell them you appreciate them all day long um but at the end of the day try to put yourself in their shoes and understand their perspective um and really acknowledge where they're coming from all right. Well, one final question before we wrap up, and this is your opportunity to uh, <laughs> to throw your own physician husband under the bus. So as the spouse of a physician, and my, my wife always gets on me about this. This was actually her question. This was not my question. So, so when your spouse gets sick, what's he like? Uh, what's he like? Do doctors really make bad patients? Dare I ask what your wife says first, or yeah. do I tell you? Yeah, that I... yeah, because I don't like I, everybody's. Well, first, I always think everybody's fine. I never think anybody's mm-hmm. anybody's like actually sick, and mm-hmm. uh, and especially myself. Like everything's always nothing, except with COVID. It was more like, oh, I'm exhausted. Oh, must be COVID. Oh, I got a runny nose. Oh, it must be COVID. Oh, right. my back hurts. It must be, co- you know, like everything became COVID during COVID. But, but otherwise, like, you know, I had a bump on my back for a long time. And, you know, she was like, well, get that checked out. I'm like, oh, no, I'm sure it's nothing. You know, those types. <laughs> everything, I'm sure it's nothing. Um, yeah. So, so that's her perspective. Well, okay. All right. Reality, so, yeah. Actually. Yeah. 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 I guess perception's reality. Right. So, um, so yeah, I got, so not to throw him under the bus, but, um, when he does get a cold, I will say everyone in the house feels it, but you know, <laughs> you know, that's just a simple cold. So, but that being said, he's much like you, like he recently had a foot issue and it went months and months without him dealing with it. And he finally went to the specialist and his Achilles was torn. Oh my God. <laughs> That's right. So he did follow the doctor's orders on that one. Um, so I guess I truly say that it depends on the situation, but yeah. for some reason those colds hit hard in this house. So, <laughs> so yeah. I had a similar incident where um, I was at a, we were at a part at a neighbor's party outdoors, outdoors, mm-hmm. neighbor's party and talking to one of my neighbors. Turns out he's got plantar fasciitis. So I was like, why are you not running in the race? Cause we have an annual Thanksgiving day race mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. It's like, oh, I got plantar fasciitis. Why? That's why I couldn't run in this other race. Like it's, and I was like, I looked it up. I was like, oh, that's why my feet hurt in the morning. That's why I can't run. That's why, like, when I do, when I, when I'm on my bike, like for a while, I can't walk for a few days. I've got plantar fasciitis. I hadn't been to the doctor. It took talking to a friend at a party to realize that I had this like a, a, foot, a foot disorder that really should be looked after. So, so did you go to the doctor or did you try to do it yourself? No, I did it myself. I texted yeah. one of my friends who's an orthopedic yeah. surgeon. I'm like, what do yeah. I do for dread? Yeah. fasciitis? Yeah, yeah. We, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, makes it's, sense. I mean, the thing is we have access to all right. these specialists. Like when, right. you know, one of my kids gets poked in the eye, you know, I, I, I text a pediatric ophthalmologist at like an academic center, you know, like it's, it's, right. we have the privileges of, of having easy access to a lot of different specialists. So it allows us to, yes. Wait, so patients. you call someone when your kid gets poked in the eye? <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, no, My not husband poked in is, the eye. It was right. Like... No, I meant like, <laughs> it usually takes like bleeding from the eyes or yes. like, it usually is like something, you know, something far, far worse. Like you said, no, it... you know, my husband thinks no one's ever sick. Yes. So, and That's usually my he sees the sickest of the sick every right. day, every day, right. every day. Right. And people who are right. not so sick. So exactly. So yes, we are, exactly. we are. Yes, I think we'd get along very well. We should next I when I'm so in too. St. Louis, we should hang out. Absolutely, that would be fun. 
We'd enjoy okay, that. Okay, so, so where can people find the Med Commons and where can people find you online if they want to uh, follow you, connect with you? Yeah, so we're on Facebook at the Med Commons, Instagram at the Med Commons. I'm on LinkedIn, the Med Commons, but also Elizabeth Landry on LinkedIn. Um, if somebody needs to get a hold of me or email me, they can email hello at the Med Commons or fill out a contact form at themedcommons.com and we'll get back to them. Fantastic. Elizabeth Great. Landry, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was fun. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. And there you have it. A celebration of five remarkable years on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. We hope these episodes inspire, educate, and uplift you as you continue on your own journey in medicine and in life. Thank you for joining us. And here's to many more years of growth, learning, and meaningful connections. Until next time. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you. This is not a doctor-patient relationship, and this is not medical advice, or financial advice, or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.